Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films that we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. I don't even know how to explain the next awesome <laughs> Patreon movies we have, but they're great. So join the sleaze. <laughs> we decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an on-air shout-out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for almost three years now, Craziness. which is insane. And I, I just did the math on it. I think we officially have 70-plus bonus episodes now waiting for oh, Wow, That's uh, awesome. anyone who hasn't made the jump yet. Um, and, uh, speaking of which we, we got to hit those on air shout outs and we have a lot of them this week. So thanks so much Beautiful. in advance. Sorry, I'm going to kind of have to rip through these, but it would take up the whole episode. So, <laughs> uh, thanks to Alex Wilson Hodge, which I believe Jamie, that's one of our, our, our coworkers from back oh, yeah. at the grocery store. Shout out Alex. to Alex. Thanks so much, Alex. Yeah. Um, we've got, uh, Connor McGonigal. We've got, uh, Cameron, uh, Cavito, we've got Evan Goach, uh, Dennis Duffy, Andrew Garris, Andrew Bistrom, two Andrews, this is the Andrew squad, Lucian <laughs> Young, Alexander Paul, j- uh, just Dave, uh, Luke Plowman, Chad Burns, Naru, I'm so sorry about how long this is going to go on for, uh, <laughs> Anthony Pug- Paglieri, uh, Punan, uh, who's a returner, I'm pretty sure I've read that one before, uh, nice. Moodles, uh, two people signing up at the uh, $10 a month rate who Ooh. were joining us for the who joined us for the um, bonus screening uh, we did last month of the New York Ripper, Lucio Fulci's New York Ripper from 1982, uh, Matthew Bird and Donna, as well as um, Aiden Andrew Chow and Socialized Crucifixion, who both went from upgraded from $5 to $10. So thanks so much to all you guys. Thank you very much, guys. But I'm still freaking going here. Okay, we've got uh, <laughs> W. Awesome. Buttery. <laughs> Uh, Joseph, Benjamin Delory, uh, James Francis, Michael Durer, and that's everyone. Wow. Is that our biggest, like... That's our that's our biggest jump in a single two-week period, for sure. So wild. thanks so much to uh, everyone who signed up this month. That's, like, absolutely insane. We're yeah. incredibly grateful. Very grateful. Um, and uh, hope you guys are all enjoying those uh, bonus episodes. And for the four of you this month who signed up to the $10, I can't wait to see you guys all at the uh, this month's coming screening, which I haven't yeah. yet decided yet, but it's definitely going to be something crime-related to go on with the switch uh, from Spooktober over to November. Um, but anyway, yeah, that uh, uh, that and that's the one plug for the week. The other plug, as always, uh, Apple Podcasts. If you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts, and I see the stats, I see them, I see you I see right you. now. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
scroll down to the bottom right now as you're listening to this and give us a good old rating and review. It helps us uh, climb the ranks over at iTunes and helps us find new listeners. Uh, we appreciate that. Um, but yeah, those are the two plugs for the week. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, as always, I am your host, Josh Lewis, and joining me also, as always, is my co-host. Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome. I think uh, two weeks ago would have been the last time you guys, free listeners, would have heard from us, and it would have been the last free episode of Spooktober, where we had a special guest, a film critic and programmer out of Toronto, Angelo Moretta, on to talk about some really, really strange sibling psychodrama horror of <laughs> Alice Sweet Alice from 1976, um, which is like a uh, insane Catholic guilt giallo made out of yeah. some dude's friends' houses in New Jersey. And then we also talked about Basket Case from 1982, Frank Henenlotter, which is a splatter film turned legitimate, sensitive, brotherly <laughs> melodrama. I really did care about that meatball by the end. Yeah, all he did was scream, but I felt his pain. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, so that was uh, uh, free for uh, all listeners and any podcast listener of choice. That was the episode two weeks ago. But last week we had the uh, bonus episode for uh, the Patreon listeners exclusively, and it was a big one. We did a sequel to our Halloween trilogy episode back from 2018, yeah. and we we tackled the next three movies in the franchise, the really insane uh, <laughs> late 80s to mid-90s period of the Halloween movies when they were that trying to compete crazy. with the Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Streets. So we talked about Halloween 4, uh, the return of Michael Myers, Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers, and Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. That's right. Um, which was the uh, starring and introducing role of Mr. Paul Rudd. <laughs> it's crazy that that's the introducing role to him. Just just wild. Yes. Technically, Clueless came out a few months before, but he actually okay. shot Halloween first, so that's why they got the introducing credit on it, oh. because it was his first like feature-length production where he was in you know a, a quasi-lead to supporting role. Right. Um, but either way, the Halloween movies in that particular period are absolutely insane, and Jamie and I tried to break them down as best as we could, but there's some really baffling... Uh, creative and production choices made and yep. some ones that are just strange enough that they're kind of fun to watch. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That's what really, that's what won me over was just how strange these, those films are. Yeah. If you want to see uh, Michael Myers, uh, baby murder druid cult, uh, <laughs> check out Halloween six, the curse of Michael Myers. And then that's right. Come on over to the patreon.com slash these podcast and listen to us. Uh, try to break that one down. <laughs> Uh, but that that uh, came out on Halloween Day, so that is it for Spooktober. It's done. It's right. gone. We will it's, miss it'll it. Come, it'll come back. Yeah, I always have fun every Spooktober every time, and it's, it's always a huge month of growth for us because I think people enjoy it so much. But we are done. It's yeah. over. Forget about it. Right. We are in officially... November here on the Sleezoids podcast where uh, it's not exclusively noir, but we try to stick to you know, the 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 realm of crime cinema. Yeah. Detectives. Undercover we're talking, cops. Uh, we're talking sad boys <laughs> with guns, baby. That's what we're talking about, for <laughs> sure. Um, and uh, for this week, I had a very special guest to bring on two films to kick off November, and uh, he went pretty all out, but I'm going to let him introduce 
um, the films as always. Uh, he is a freelance film critic for all kinds of different uh, places, such as Little White Lies, Empire, Sight and Sound, Thrillist, Polygon. He is also a uh, film festival and 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 TIFF acquaintance, uh, <laughs> making his debut appearance on the show finally. Um, we have joining us Campbellay Campbell. Cam, how you doing? <laughs> I'm good, thanks. That's um, a very, uh, let's say, like, I don't know, it feel, makes me feel grand with the, the long list of titles. <laughs> you deserve it. You deserve it. Thank come you. On. Thank you. <laughs> all all, all those outlets in uh, your bio? Come on, man. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I was fishing for it, for sure. <laughs> anyway, um, the films that I picked for this double bill uh, are Bill Duke's Deep Cover and... Ringo Lamb's City on Fire. Um, so should I just get, talk about why I picked? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I of course. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Just, uh, yeah, why? Because why? Uh, you'd only seen one of these before prior to actually choosing them, correct? Yes. Uh, I'd only seen City on Fire before. Um, mm-hmm. But you but knew that Deep Cover would work. <laughs> yes. Because really uh, it does. My bones. <laughs> <laughs> I knew there were sad boys with guns. I knew it had Larry Fishburne <laughs> when, he was called, when he was called Larry Fishburne. And, um, it kind of been on my eye, like it'd been on my radar for a while. Um, funnily enough, because I'd actually, um, I'd booked a ticket to see it in a cinema before, uh, lockdown happened. And then, you know, so I had been wanting to see deep cover for a really long time. And I figured what better way to, um, push me into finally watching it at home than making myself have to talk about it. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. There you go. And um, it was. It's kind of. It kind of stood out to me because uh, Bill Duke isn't really like a big name in '90s film noir in the same way that someone like um, uh, Carl Franklin might be. Um, when mm. you think kind of subversive, um, subversive film noirs like based around uh, kind of racial politics in the states, uh, my mind immediately went to something like Devil in a Blue Dress. So, um, great Deep cover was something with, uh, Denzel really... Washington for anyone who hasn't seen that one. Also might have worked too. one false move. I don't know if you've seen that. That one's a little bit more dramatic, I guess, but that's a really good Carl Franklin, you know, doing, uh, lo- local drug dealing melodrama qualities and stuff like that as well. Yeah. And I think it would probably would have lended to the claustrophobic kind of qualities of sitting on fire, but, <laughs> uh, I went for the one with Jeff Goldblum in it. Hell yeah! Um, <laughs> no, it was it was it was the right pick because we're basically just talking uh, undercover macho existentialism a little bit. But man, I was absolutely blown away by by Deep Cover, especially. Yeah, yeah, it's these it's are really phenomenal. Um, so, City on Fire, I thought um, I kind of associate it with the subversion of a kind of subgenre that was. Fledgling, which I found quite interesting because kind of heroic bloodshed was finding its roots um, in Hong Kong, maybe like the year before with another Chow Yun Fat film about tomorrow. And Sing mm-hmm. on Fire kind of flies in the face of the sort of stylistic values of such films. You kind of have the kind of high flying pageantry of John Woo stuff countered by Ringo Lamb having, you know, like you said, uh, macho existentialism and um, just this crisis amongst mm-hmm. this sort of this personal crisis amongst law enforcement uh and it's presented in this very bleak um 
matter of fact kind of way apart from a couple of occasions where cars explode in two shots of a revolver um <laughs> yeah i mean it was it was pretty cool to see someone other than john woo doing you know the kind of things that he would angle to more towards something more in like hard-boiled um which he did in 1992 and we've talked about on the show but like that was like all about um sort of like the the chaos and destructiveness of 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 these people rather than you know sort of the more romantic qualities of something like the killer yeah um uh, which, which to be fair, also has some really bleak elements to it. That does not have a happy ending uh, when we talked <laughs> no. about it, the killer. But I, I, I do agree that Ringo Lamb is definitely, b- before even the heroic bloodshed and the sort of like ballet Hong Kong destruction action movie sort of like uh, became as popular as it was, he was already in some ways uh, subverting some qualities of it, which is very cool. And also it was nice for you to bring on Ringo Lamb, uh, York University Toronto alumni. So uh, oh, cool. he's got a Canadian connection for some reason. He grew up in Hong Kong. He traveled to Canada to study film, and he went right back to Hong Kong <laughs> and started making movies. Um, but yeah, so the double feature this week is going to be City on Fire from 1987 and Deep Cover uh, from 1992. We're going to be talking undercover uh, cops having very um, existential and personal identity crises Um in uh, a, a sort of quasi uh, city on fire is a little bit more action heavy deep covers a little bit more um noir heavy um but it's definitely going to be an interesting way to kick off november here on the sleazoids podcast and i think we yeah. are going to um start off right here we're going to do these ones i think chronologically so we are going to take on uh city on fire We are talking City on Fire, the 1987 Hong Kong crime thriller action film produced and directed by Ringo Lam and starring Chow Yun-Fat and uh, Danny Lee, who, um, uh, Jamie, you might remember as his co-star on The Killer. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And this is and this and this predates the killer by by two years. So it was very cool seeing them sort of like do something before that. John Woo maybe even uh, pulling pulling a little bit. I mean, John Woo obviously used Chow Yun Fat first in A Better Tomorrow, as uh, Cam brought up at the at the top of the show there. That A uh, Better Tomorrow I think came out eighty six, so just one year before uh, City on Fire. Okay, but and um, they switched roles at, this time too, right? Because I think in the killer. The uh, the other guy is the the cop or kind yeah, of yeah Danny Lee Danny Lee guy. is the cop like kind of uh, finding seeing the virtues of Chayon Fat's uh, government assassin no not government assassin but hitman um, right right yes. kind of they forge a very similar brotherly bond but over a much longer period of time in the killer <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, and and from from what I understand with uh, this one, um, 
Ringo Lam actually met Chow Yun Fat in in acting school. That they both went to uh, actor school in Hong Kong before he traveled to Toronto, where he he actually um, studied film, and then he came back to Hong Kong. And when he came back to Hong Kong, he was basically hired for a lot of just very very basic journeyman, um, you know, local studio work. Like it was a lot of like uh, very similar to what we're going to be talking about um, next week on the show with um, Seijun Suzuki. Um, he was oh, yeah. someone who was kind of hired to you know carry the B movie from the script stage to the editing stage and put it out. Um, but he was, and he was actually so good at basically, you know, come getting his stuff done and the movies coming out and actually being decently successful. You know, he made, he made comedies, he made crime films, he made basically any film they would give to him. He made, but because he was actually doing such a good job, one of the producers, um, which I believe name was Carl Maka, he gave him a blank check to basically make whatever kind of film he wanted. And with that check, he made city on fire. Um, so between this and a better tomorrow, the the sort of like Hong Kong gangster action craze that we've covered on the show, with we're talking about John Woo's The Killer and Hard Boiled, which we've done once before, they basically invented, um, or at least popularized. Um, even if they, you know, a lot of elements came from different kinds of films. A lot of filmmakers are pulling from different kinds of people all the different time, but um, they basically popularized this sort of heroic bloodshed melodrama that John Woo um, is very famous for. Um, okay. with you know with men on opposite sides of the law that have shared codes or guilt about the violence and there's uh, this in particular adds an undercover uh, aspect to it which adds shades of sort of like performance and identity into it and uh, really lets us get into Chow's character who uh, in this looks like he belongs more with uh, the criminals than he does the cops <laughs> and he understands in many different ways their codes of brotherhood and their their skillful craft more than he understands sort of the um, very, I guess, manipulative or uh, mechanical use of the, f that the police force makes of him. Yeah. Like uh, a lot of this ends up coming down to the crisis at the heart of Chow Yun Fat's character who is being asked to infiltrate um, these jewelry heisters in Hong Kong. And he has a lot of trouble being undercover because the job requires him to become friends with people and then basically guide those people to their deaths. And he has obviously a moral crisis with doing that. And then especially that is just compounded by watching um, the sort of like uh, lieutenants and, and other cops who are not his, his uncle who he actually has a relationship with who basically just want to use him as a tool and see no sort of relationship or friendship with him at all. He actually sees more yeah. friendship amongst the criminals. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. He gets real close. That's, that's one of the um, things that struck me most about both of these films really is that's very cold presentation of um, the police as just these, not just like kind of, in physical presence, like very chaotic people, but also these very cold careerists. Um, yeah. yeah. Like every decision made uh, by, I can't remember the dude's name, but he has that big leather jacket and he kind of just, the one who gets bricked. <laughs> yeah, I just called him lead dickhead. <laughs> I think I, I I think his name was uh, he was he was Inspector John. Gotcha. That was, yeah. He's, yeah. He's, a, he, he's, he's the he's the young up and comer. Yeah, it's Inspector John. Um, and he sort of just makes these decisions just being like, well, this would make us look great. Whereas um, at every turn where um, Ko Chow wants to just get the hell out of there. Um, yeah. 
and it's kind of the same. Uh, a lot of it is the same with deep cover, which I suppose we'll come to, where it's just, you know, these decisions aren't being made for the sake of things being prevented or uh, any kind of law being kept, but it's just this will make me look real good to the big boys. Right, and it's like the whole the whole point was I, we thought uh, for the benefit of the community. And it seems like that's never in their discussions whatsoever. It's 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 never like what <laughs> yeah. what will benefit these people. Uh, it, it's it's always yeah. It's always the career and 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 it's always like uh, discussions of putting other people in danger in order to get it done. Specifically, Chow a lot of the time. Um, yeah, because yeah. he's kind of coerced into this, right? He doesn't even want to do it at first, and and uh, no, he's 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 basically at at the beginning of the film, he's kind of just a local street informer who's kind of into different rackets, but nothing, yeah. you know, as severe as killing people or robbing people or arms dealing or anything particularly severe. He's kind of just a low level street thug who used to be, I guess, a police informer, um, and so they they kind of approach him to get back into the work and actually go full undercover because there is this um, crew of really professional diamond heisters who are making, uh, you know, pulling off these robberies and doing so in a way that is very destructive. And, And Ringo Lamb really wants to highlight, you know, how kind of wild this crew can be. I mean, the opening scene of this is an undercover cop like blowing his cover, trying to make a call to a superior, and then just getting absolutely gutted oh, and bleeding yeah. all over. You know, like the 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 sheets while like neon lights are like spinning around him, and there's and the, there's even like handheld chaos of like running through the markets and everything like that. And the choice of the him shot. wearing a uh, a big white sweater is just fantastic yeah. because the like just the blood is. <laughs> everywhere and it's just so not just that but the shot behind the big like kind of um oh i don't kind of like a tarpaulin sheet where he just Uh kind of presses like dramatically presses against it and you just see the blood like spray towards you yeah it's just yeah and also i I love the uh (laughs) just the the initial like mood that the film gives you because it starts with that kind of sad but somewhat romantic saxophone that's that's going on and then it just like very smooth jazz (laughs) yeah yeah and then it cuts into people shopping and then right into that stabbing so it's it's just a an awesome introduction to kind of set that mood that noir mood yeah yeah what and and to open on something like so um gruesome yeah especially really does um you know set set the set the mood and and also the way that the police kind of like respond to that kind of stuff they set up like right away. Like I love when they're loading up the corpse into the uh, ambulance and they're like literally just like fumbling it around and like throwing it around and they're they're, like, stop, like have some respect for the dead for a moment as they're very gracelessly like picking them up off the ground. Like it's just a regular thing that they see every day, which to be fair uh, could, could very well be in, in this particular universe, but it's not for Chow Yun-Fat who's playing this guy named Kaucho. Um, and he is introduced in typical Chow Yun Fat uh, fashion as the coolest motherfucker ever. <laughs> who is he's he's smoking a cigarette. He's got a popped denim shirt underneath a giant oversized jacket, to which he's yes. also wearing a bow tie. The bow tie and denim shirt is like I've been going back and forth on it all day. <laughs> <laughs> that is style, it's- son. Like truly something only the man who was introduced to burning money to light a cigarette can <laughs> yeah. pull off. 
<laughs> yeah, l- literally, this is a look no one else could pull off. I think he's also wearing uh, corduroy pants and combat boots as well. He's just nailing oh, dude, this look. While we're while we're talking about fashion, then I I got to. Uh, uh, say that there's one gangster in this uh, that where he has a meeting and he's wearing the most like badass turtleneck and chain that I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. He's got this like black blazer with a black turtleneck, gold chain. He's looking, he's looking slick. I just had to say it. The fashion in this movie is is unreal. Next it's level drip, y'all. <laughs> the 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 late eighties, especially in, uh, I mean, like it was it was a crazy time for everyone in fashion. But you love yeah. seeing it in in Hong Kong because Chow Yun Fat he just swaggers his way through the club. He's <laughs> he's getting into fights and getting arrested over you know he he has a, a girlfriend that he you know maybe intends to marry but you know he's he's also pursuing other girls he's he's basically just in like kind of like this weird rom-com movie where you know he's into <laughs> where you know he's a little bit into loan sharking and he's a little bit into drugs and all that but he's not really doing anything particularly terrible amongst the community and then he is asked and they say dude we need you to go undercover to take down these heisters because these heisters are absolutely ruthless and they are ruthless and they are incredibly skilled the heist sequence that we see them pull off is like absolutely incredible yeah where danny lee uh who's playing a robber named tiger um they pull off this heist in what has to be a sequence that had to have inspired heat where they Mm -hmm. basically like uh you know they they make their way in by like very quietly and skillfully like grabbing the guard and taking the power out and taking the elevator up and there's like this very uh like subtle pounding score going in in the background and it's a completely silent set piece as we track their process of them putting the masks on and waiting till the dude is buzzed in uh, before they you know decide to actually run in themselves and it reminded me very specifically of the of the bank heist scene um in in heat and even ends on like the pure destruction shootout in the streets of the cars and the chaos outside um which is which is very similar yeah but the way that they pull off this heist is very thrilling ringo lamb i think has a good sense of again tracking their process and the way that they sort of like think their way through what they're doing and how impressed honestly the cops are by kind of what they do but then also (laughs) nailing that destruction and that gruesomeness by the end because um at a certain point um, they make one mistake and that is, um, one of the old ladies comes into the jewelry store looking to buy something and she sees everyone being held up while they are basically like torturing the bank manager, trying to get him to open up. Yeah. Like the, stabbing uh, his hand and all that crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Really gross. And she runs downstairs and immediately alerts the police and everyone starts coming in. But Danny Lee does something that's really cool. And he basically comes down, stands at the bottom of the elevator and pretends that he's just a customer going up. (laughs) And he's just, you know, he's just pressing the thing. The cops come over and they're like, hey, man, don't go up there. What are you doing? There's robbers up there. And they tell him to, like, you know, push back (laughs) and get out of the way. You can see Danny Lee as he gets behind them immediately just starts beating the shit out of them, pulls out his gun. The woman's screaming. And because one of them attacks him, he actually just straight up like executes one of the cops like right there. Giant bloody squib all over the fucking wall. (laughs) Because like we already had that moment in the intro where the guy gets stabbed, but I didn't know how far we were going with the squibs or blood work. And this is like, this shot is wild because you just see the gunshot and then his whole back of his head just like splatters with blood on the white wall behind him. It's, it's, It's a wild shot. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, and 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 outside they're doing shootouts where cars are flipping. He, Ringo Lamb is yeah. cross-cutting between like the jewelry being stuffed into the duffel bag and then like cop cars exploding and sending fire to the air in in slow and motion. And like they're huge. He, fires he really too. wants there's to like, highlight the chaos and destructiveness. Yeah, and I love like the like there's this awesome shot of them doing the shootout on the street, and in the background you just see the cop cars on fire and. The fires are massive, and there's just huge bellows of black smoke, and the de- the detail is fantastic. There's the um, there's this very very exaggerated impact, which kind of surprised me because of the um, well, on first view, surprised me because of this this film's repu- rep- like reputation as being quite um, no nonsense about it's and very plain and brutal about its violence. And then you mm-hmm. kind of out of nowhere have, I think it's Danny who just fires a couple of shots from a revolver. One of them goes through a windscreen and the car just completely overturns and explodes. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I just, I kind of, it took me by surprise. Uh, that emphasis on it. Yeah, see, on what you I don't understand is that is subtle by Hong Kong standards, right? <laughs> yeah, and uh, it just kind of, it, my mind um, flashed to um, a similar sequence in Hard Boiled when um, I think it's a bit in the shootout in the warehouse where someone fires a shotgun or a bike and that just blows the hell up as well. But even, yeah, like you were saying, the um, fewer flames, I guess, but it's, um, I suppose, yeah, the impact is still there. Um, yeah. A bit more exuberant. Definitely. Well, and I, and I would say, too, that, like, we, we talked a lot about the chaos of John Woo, but I would say that there is a significant difference in Ringo Lamb's chaos, which is that it's it's not this, um, this, this beautiful pageantry of destruction or chaos or collateral damage of any kind. Like, John Woo, he is obsessed with, you know, sort of the tangible yeah. materials in his frame and watching the debris fly and, and watching all of these elements in move gracefully almost in his yeah. slow motion shots. Ringo Lamb this is, is really focused on the the gruesomeness and the the poundingness and the bluntness of it. Yeah. And so despite the fact that he is taking it to exaggerated places for, you know, maybe uh, you know, like a, a smaller budget American crime film or something like that, um, I do get a very different feeling. Like the fact that I'm thinking more of something like uh, uh, heat, for example, like that's not something I would necessarily compare in its action to what John Woo is doing. So the fact that I'm thinking of something like that, I think, shows us that he's he's doing something a little different, and it, that gets even yeah. more different by the fact that there isn't a lot of action that plays out like this. I mean, like the the finale is when we get to it is is like almost incomprehensible in terms of like that spatial geography of it because yeah. it really is just meant to be painful um to watch in that way. Um so despite the fact that you know there there is um a similar sense of mood here I think happening in some of the downtime, like some of the stuff with Chow um does have a little bit of that, you know, sort of like a street level melodrama angle that John Woo liked to do. There's a lot of that sort of like neon light um, streets and, you know, the jazzy sort of canto pop and canto rock that plays in the clubs that, you know, he's he's infiltrating in and, and things like that. So despite that, I do think that there is something a little bit different happening here, and it, it gets really clear to me um, as the undercover stuff starts to get taken um, very, very um, seriously, because there are elements of yeah. this that are almost almost comedic in just how uh, 
absurd the robbers can be and how absurd the police reaction can be at the same time. <laughs> there is a little bit of that uh, that hard-boiled element of sort of like that strain of new cop versus sort of like the old guard. And uh, same same with the, the, uh, the criminal aspect where hard-boiled a lot of the time took a look at sort of like the young blood criminals are much more willing to be psychopathic and have, you know, uh, no 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 codes or respect respect or quasi ethical mobsters right. and Ringo Lamb I think takes on this idea that there almost is no ethical decisions to be made in this context. Yeah. Um, there is just so much um, pain and destruction, and so much of this is just. Um, honestly more sort of suspense driven i think of the scene of like chow yun fat like uh you know basically he infiltrates this group by trying to sell them arms and his his higher up um at the police station basically gives him these arms um and he's a little bit conflicted about that because he's like you know now i'm going to become an arms dealer and i don't really i don't really want to give these guys guns i've seen what they can do with guns yeah i don't feel like it's not a good idea to give these guys guns is broadly <laughs> his, his opinion on the subject <laughs> um but they were like you know what? we got to give them guns so that you know we can we can get them to trust you we can get them uh get, get you in, involved with them i think they um, mentioned like tracking we, the guns what, too in some way yeah i was gonna say um just it's that element of control that comes in where he's saying like yeah. we at least this way we'll know how many guns that with they have um yeah they're gonna get them from somewhere else anyway and i was really fascinated by that idea of this institution just being like look like it's gonna happen either way but as long as we know then it's fine yeah as long uh, as we're in control <laughs> it, it'll go completely smooth <laughs> and, it, it, yeah. and of course it all goes fine just to say <laughs> so. yeah, that's that's how this story ends up <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's a that's a really good point because that 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 pairs really well with uh, into deep cover, which deep cover takes that on to like the furthest extent, like yeah. historically that it happened in the United States with like the CIA literally getting involved in drug dealing. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah that was uh, a major like kind of connective element for me with um, Lawrence Fishburne being. Well, I suppose we'll get into it a bit in a bit, sure. but um, with him being given these uh, like. Well, being given drugs to deal as like a tool to further his relationships that that in the will supposedly do the greater good in the long run, and he's just like, look, I don't get why I'm just a dealer, and he's just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, seems not that, good, seems not right, doesn't feel right. <laughs> yeah, where it's just that there's that kind of that objection, like uh, smooth over this paltry thing, just being like, don't just don't worry about it. Like at least we know. I could have um, swore our slogan was protect and serve, but you know, it's yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so it doesn't seem right um yeah but I, I i like how much of this like as we get into this part of the film and it 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 does become how does he get these jewelry heisters to let him in to trust him it does become a series of just sort of not action scenes really suspense scenes of you know, like him meeting them at the cemetery where he's going to, you know, sell them or get them to inspect the guns and see if they like the guns and want to buy them. And that had some spooky you know, vibes, honestly. That scene was was pretty yeah. cool. It has these these nice like wide shots of just the headlights that are for the lighting. The foggy uh, cemetery itself. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then there's a part where where Chow like kind of trips or is pushed and his foot goes into a hole and and. <laughs> and like a head comes out of it like it's just a very very kind of strange sequence but it 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 kind of adds to that that 
you know, the, the thought of death and violence and stuff like that. Yeah, he, he gets mud and a skull stuck on his combat boot because he slips <laughs> into a grave. Because because he's terrified that these guys are going to find the recorder that he has on him, which being, which he's been, you know, forced to have on him. Yeah. Yeah, Ringo Lamb is very good at ringing suspense out of, like, very simple scenes. Like, this, like obviously, this undercover deal in, in the cemetery. Even just the mood and the location work of the cemetery itself does a, does a long way of doing that. But also the filmmaking. Um but also, uh, like after he does like this extended chase scene where Chow Yun Fat has to go from sort of like casual walking to an on foot chase to a car chase, trying to basically lose this tail who uh, is after him because basically, sort of like the young cops, John, uh, led by John, they just think that he's a dude who works for this crew. Uh, or is they they're they're finding the guy who sells him guns, which is technically what he's doing, but they don't realize that he's doing it, you know, on behest of the police undercover. So he's basically spending this whole te- this whole movie trying to get involved with these criminals and also evade the police, despite being actually uh, a cop. It's very sort of similar to, um, I guess you would say something like. Uh, I don't know the, the departed I guess or yeah. uh, a lot of obviously a lot of people have made a lot of note on how much this inspired um reservoir dogs it's kind of been talked to to death that Tarantino has basically admitted that he wholesale like stole scenes from this like uh, Chow <laughs> Yun Fat in the in the Tim Roth role and Danny I Lee mean, in the Harvey Keitel role <laughs> I mean reservoir dogs is a Basically, the last 20 minutes of this film expanded to feature length, right? Yes, that, that's literally what it is, yes. <laughs> where they, where, where I they get... The, the... I haven't watched it in so long, um, but yeah, this, that's, that whole scene, I was like, right, well, this is kind of, you know, just the conclusion to something. Um, yeah, starting from, like, the, the like Mexican standoff that they get into in the final hideout where they're hiding from the cops after uh, the heist kind of goes wrong... That's like literally the beginning. That's the opening. The heist going wrong is the beginning of Reservoir Dogs. So yeah, yeah it's and- it, it's funny. Um, but yeah, so this the, this chase scene is is um, very well done, and again, it, it tracks the sort of process and decision making of Chow Yun Fat. Like, there's one point where he he literally he's very casually walking and taking note of them, but then a bus goes by, and he uses that to basically like run. Uh, alongside the bus so they can't see him yeah. like basically like 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 get away and this whole time he's trying to get to a bowling alley which is i think is where he's keeping the guns this is why he's trying to lose the tail because he has all the guns in this locker at a bowling alley where uh and he doesn't want to get caught with those guns obviously by those cops they end up sort of like catching him um anyway despite the fact that uh you know he runs into danny lee at the bowling alley he ends up actually selling them the pistols and something again i always love about hong kong films um i love how guns are illegal so the the dramatics of an arms deal like this is so intense the 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 way that ringo lamb is filming this is like this is like this might as well be a nuclear codes weapons deal uh, in the context of his filmmaking. And he finally gets to, you know, Danny Lee's hideout and he's being introduced to the boss and he's being introduced to, you know, all the different crew members. He's selling them three pistols. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and a couple rounds to go along with them. I think it's like 90 rounds or a hundred rounds or something like that. I can't remember how soon after the sequence it is, but I just love that shot where the guy just like opens this really like ostentatious briefcase and it's like four guns and everyone's just like, nice. 
<laughs> yeah, it's 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 it's, it's really uh, quaint and 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 uh, cute in that kind of way. Despite and which is always so fun to watch. That's also why there's also so much more stabbings and stuff in these movies as well. Um, but also, there's sort of a subplot with him and his um, fiance that yeah. is kind of going on in the background. So that that car chase is also expanded upon because the gun deal is at 10 a.m. But also his uh, wedding and marriage registration ceremony is at 10 a.m. at the same time. <laughs> yeah. So there's this. There, there's also some drama. Some drama, like sort of like wrung out of that as well, which I which I kind of like because at first I thought it was like a little bit, uh, a little bit silly for like the context of the rest of the film. But it does sort of lend itself to you know the kinds of stuff that he would be doing if he wasn't told to be an undercover cop. Yeah. Like there's so much of just Chow Yun Fat like hanging out being a goofball at one point he just starts like dancing in the street <laughs> yeah, and like and popping like, his collar with his jacket and stuff <laughs> yeah and, like pointing at ladies and then the the one scene where he's in the apartment and uh in order to get her friend to leave so that uh he can like ha- basically have sex with his uh fiance is he just gets naked in front of her and it's just like all right so either you're joining or you're leaving <laughs> it's like that obviously probably an inappropriate move but very funny watching chow just shake his ass at her and then like run into the shower uh like it's just and, and also it's it's the the dialogue and the jokes are very like i don't know kind of gross in a way like like he gets in and they start they playfully acting as if she's like i'll call the cops on you for sexual assault or whatever (laughs) and uh and and that is like a way for them to flirtatiously get into making out and so it's it's very very strange uh but um i don't know it's very funny and charming in a way too it's like a scene in the cadence of police story which is very i was just gonna uh, say that (laughs) (laughs) like just just um like when it's kind of put in between all of these scenes of brutality and you just have him goofing around, like right. um, it, it's, it's, um, it's perfect in its own way, just even in isolation. But um, yeah, I think just that element of these personal connections, like all just being utterly destroyed uh, yes. by his job, like his familial right. connection with his uncle, who's also, um, or basically his um, CI or whatever. Um, I don't know what you call it. Um, yeah, I, for, I forget what you call that. He, he's the guy that he reports to for his undercover mission and yeah. the only guy who actually knows that he's an undercover informant. Yeah, and it's just like his uncle. So at the same time, he's like, at the same time, he's having conversations like, you've got to give these uh, guns to these jewel runners. Uh, he's also saying, also, you should visit your grandma sometime. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I love the, uh, like, after the exchange, what they do is they have um, the, who, what's the lead bad guy's name again? The, his character name? Um, opposite of chow tiger tiger uh they tiger. Ha- tiger fucking drives chow to the airport to like meet up with his his girlfriend <laughs> that's going to canada with some like random other dude or whatever and i just found it very funny because it's like this 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 small moment where where the movie turns into slightly like a romantic comedy where he's trying to get to the girl at the airport at the last second. Yeah, it's that big in third this version, act, like yeah. it's raining. <laughs> but in this version, he gets caught for arms dealing by cops, and she just goes to Canada anyway. So it's like I just I, I loved that little that that one scene of this kind of like he's driving him to the airport, but it's the guy that he's doing the arms dealing with. It's fantastic. Yes. 
Yeah. Well, yeah. And I, I think that that Cam's point is like absolutely spot on. That was my read on it too, was that, you know, the, these kind of goofier elements, like for example, his arms dealing, a brutal killer criminal, the being the guy driving him to the third act rom-com <laughs> scene where he yeah. begs for forgiveness. Like the, the reason that something like that works in this film is because it is about how much life he is filled with and how yes. much, this the job itself is um dehumanizing and destructive and um weirdly enough he actually ends up having more intimate personal relationships with these criminals like i love when he finally has downtime with these guys because they invite after he gives them the guns they invite him into the heist and him and danny lee actually bond basically over how their jobs have you know ruined their marriages uh it basically because he basically watched that happen he has to explain to danny lee that that's what he was doing um and so that scene is so good yeah, yeah and and it's it, it's literally just like them the 24 hours before the heist is about to happen like basically just hanging out together in a flat uh, becoming friends with them, talking to them about their lives and their futures and and, th- and, th- and their hopes. I think my favorite detail of that scene too is how just loud and obnoxious and drunk they're being. And then there's this there's this shot of the guy that's at head level and he's trying to sleep on a bunk right next to them. And it, it's just this long <laughs> shot of him sleeping there. And I'm like, oh, that guy's probably really bothered. And then a good, I don't know, like minute or two into it, he actually gets up and is like, what the fuck guys and like turns around there's there's some really good <laughs> subtle comedy to this uh, even amongst all the the chaos and destruction too yeah and I, I just think that that's so important because it shows yeah. you what's being lost what's being snuffed out exactly um, by the work that they are doing and which which really translates like that scene happens right before they go and obviously pull off this this heist but they uh, a lot of the heist goes wrong the alarm goes off and they panic um, one of them shoots the jewelry store clerk to like a bloody pulp oh um, yeah it's like six shots into the chest it's just ruthless yeah, and obviously Chow Yun-Fat is very, like, up, upset about that. And there's also a dramatic reveal that happens in the scene where earlier in the film, uh, Chow Yun-Fat, from his uncle, is shown uh, a sketch of the guy who killed the undercover cop from the opening scene in the stabbing. Right. Um, and the sketch is, he's like, how am I supposed to make out this sketch? Because it's literally just a hat, sunglasses, and, like, the face covered <laughs> up by, a, like, a straight jacket. Yeah. Um, and he's just like, there's no way I could identify this person based on this sketch. And what does Danny Lee do in the scene? He puts on the exact same fucking outfit fit so the second danny lee zips up his coat and he sees the glasses and the hat and the coat the exact same way it was drawn on the sketch he's like holy shit i just became friends with the guy who killed the previous undercover cop and that obviously really upsets him because he's just like holy shit someone who is a ruthless killer is someone who is um you know i am now personally intimate with in a way so those complex feelings infiltrate this heist gone wrong, turned into a, a really gruesome shootout on the street that, again, focuses on the collateral damage and the destruction, the shattered glass, the corpses lying on the streets, even, like, the blood all over the gold and, and things like that in, in the imagery. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is that, technically, he sees his job as sort of, like, preventing these kinds of massacres from happening, but that's not really what they're doing. They're actually just... 
you know, having him be a part of it. And what's interesting is that, so he's conflicted that the people he's now close with are killers. Um, and he knows that they're killers. And then, but also he's conflicted by their deaths, watching these criminals be killed beside him and just gruesomely gunned down. You know, he's now close and sort of like intimate with these people as the cops start ripping them to shreds. And that freaks him out too. So yeah, he's having, we, Chow Yun-Fat's having like a huge existential crisis <laughs> in the middle of this shootout. Yeah. And then, and it's, then um, you even oh, get that sorry, one, sorry. this will be short anyway, but it's uh, that th- you get that one shot of him where I believe it's him saving Tiger. And then it's one of the, main cops that we've seen a couple times throughout the film and he without even like flinching just takes the gun and shoots him and kills the cop like it was like a very natural thing Mm -hmm. to him you know so he's definitely having that 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 crisis in the middle of the shootout and you can just see that because he's just he openly shot that cop without even thinking like it was an instinct so i thought that was a really cool detail as well yeah um just like to to that effect um the sort of emotional isolation for um, Chayon Fat's character is just uh, at this point, I, the film's been going on something like an hour and he only really has like a real conversation about what his job is doing to him um, at like the hour mark with um, <laughs> Danny Lee. And like, uh, he's just had, you just realize that he's had like nothing to cling on to at to this point, And there's like been no emotional support, even from, a person like the only person who knows what he really is truly doing and is a family member to him but still keeps him at this sort of emotional distance uh yeah. like when he shows his uncle like the picture of his fiance uh, he's just like look isn't she pretty and he's like super proud of himself and he's just like yeah but what does that matter and um yeah. he doesn't really yeah. talk about anything meaningful with him and then he finally ha- has this with danny lee's character and then it just all goes to shit almost immediately. So just that, um, I just I just felt that that uh, isolation, um, which of course crosses over to deep cover as well, um, mm-hmm. just really compelling. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, like that's that's sort of like the um, the main subject of the final hideout scene, which we described already as sort of like the opening scene of 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 Reservoir Dogs. Essentially, Tarantino basically stole it, but the robbery goes wrong. They go to this hideout, and they're basically like, "This is our first robbery that's gone wrong." The only new aspect is this dude, Chow. So they were like, immediately, <laughs> he's the new guy, he's the rat. Um, everyone's pointing guns at each other in here. And Danny Lee, in the same way that Harvey Keitel does in Reservoir Dogs, he's like, no, 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 it can't be him. He saved me. He, uh, I'm, I've, I've bonded with him. He is not the guy that you're looking for. And this is sort of like the, the dramatics of this as the boss. Uh, doesn't believe him. He's like, no, 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 there's there's no chance. I've done the math on this. The only possible thing that could have gone wrong here is that the new guy's a cop. That's it. Yeah. And uh, obviously he's he, he's right, but basically this leads into the cops surrounding their hideout, which is basically just sort of like this weird, like abandoned shack in the middle of like a Dude. like a field almost. Yeah, it remind this this ending uh, really reminded me of that uh, that Kelly Gang movie that we watched. <laughs> yeah, where they surround them inside the yeah, uh, just start the little hut that they're rifling in. at at them. Yeah, it's it's a very very similar ending. Is yeah, and I, I, I really like the look of um, it too. The like the metallic hideout lit by like just the police lights and the rays of moonlight and stuff. Yeah, and then very as moody. and then as it goes, the the lighting turns into the bullet holes from the night sky coming into the into the shack. Yes. So it's yeah, it's great. And during this final scene, which is. Uh, really, really sort of like emotionally 
painful to watch because it's basically uh, all of these complex feelings that Chow Yun-Fat has of, you know, sort of feeling like the police are a mechanical, impersonal force of destruction and that there is a more sort of personal and intimate brotherhood amongst the criminals, but they also are brutal in their own fashion and he's just living with that contradiction in him at the moment. And he basically causes the criminals to get into a shootout where they're literally shooting each other. Like, um, the boss shoots, uh, one of the underlings and then they both, uh, shoot the boss together. Yeah. Chow Yun fat gets hit by gunfire. It's uncertain whether it's from the boss or whether it's from the cops, which I think is, you know, sort of like meant to be a little ambiguous there on how exactly he got shot and he's bleeding out. But as Chow Yun fat is like bleeding out next to this one person in this film, he thinks of as like a friend right now. And he so badly doesn't want to betray him. And he also doesn't want to lie to him. So he admits he's like, I am a cop. And Danny Lee is obviously like really, really upset learning that. Yeah. But what, what does he say? He says, kill me because we can't be on the same side and I don't want to kill you. And it's so (laughs) brutal that he's just sitting there bleeding out. He's looking at this dude who killed the last undercover agent. And it's the person he has the most feelings for in the entire world, basically. Yeah. Oh my God. (laughs) And he, and and he just asks him to kill him. He's like, please just kill me. Yeah. It's it's, so upsetting. (laughs) It's like, and it's, it's so like, it's not like the, the movie doesn't have a ton of darkness throughout, but there was nothing yet that really, you know, got to that kind of depressive state. Like it was just, that's so sad. That's so empty. There's, there's no hope left. And, uh, and yeah, it really is a gut punch when it gets to that point. Um, especially Chow being such a, like a likable character. Like he's just such a charismatic and goofy guy. So for him to end in so such tragedy, it's just, it's a lot to take. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) From the criminal he's made best friends with. It's just, it, oh my God. So sad. Yeah, well, and, and 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 credit to Danny Lee, too, who, in this scene, he has to go from being immediately so pissed off at him for the betrayal yeah. of, of him being a cop to when the cops come in and arrest them, Chow Yun-Fat is actually lying bled out dead on the yeah. ground, and Danny Lee's expression immediately goes to, like, heartache. He's like, that was, holy shit, my, my friend is also just dead. The, the cops killed him as well. Uh, They killed their own undercover agent. And when his uncle comes in, he immediately starts like freaking out because he was just like, yeah, so some careerist basically just killed my nephew and his uh, friend and his relationship um, basically just so that, you know, they could uh, very cynically start this heist and all of this destruction was the idea. Like they are the ones who planned it. Like they were the ones who actually, when they found out that Chow Yun-Fat was on, was undercover, they said that he should join the heist against the, uh, you know, the, the protests of the uncle who was like, it's too dangerous. Yeah. Um, and he ended up being totally right. I do love that. The uncle gets to beat John over the head with a brick. At the end. I, I was just oh going to say, he just, he just faces him with that thing. And, and nobody does a damn thing. They're like, you know what? I don't like that guy either. <laughs> that's what it yeah, felt like, like it's I so funny it's just that sequence of, it's kind of that sequence of shots where it's um i'm pretty sure does it go to from the um hawaii letter to um then john with the cars and saying like ah oh, well this is like the first uh huge first in a series of cases that we could bust like we've done real great work here um, <laughs> yeah i think yeah. it does 
just that just that really ruthless cut from just this life being extinguished to this other guy just being like well uh <laughs> and we also just we also have that line too that he says where he's like but i have to follow you to hawaii it's so uh, similar to like uh he says something similar and i think the killer where it's something like Something about Mickey Mouse or whatever. It's just another like <laughs> yeah. kind of like romantic gesture to the bro that you just made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and 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 the final shot is this really ghostly like overhead pullout shot of the corpses, Oof. like the of of Chow Yun Fat and the boss and all the dead bodies that they left inside the hideout, and then it's crossfaded with the dancing. Uh, yeah. Chow, who is was so full of life earlier in the film, which is what kind of clarified me. All the goofier elements were were there to be. Yeah, and, and then you yeah. also have like the he he uh, does that fade with the with the freeze frame. He does a fade of him dancing, and then all of the bullet holes that are that are lighting yeah. up the room. So it's like it, you have those both those images of just his his life, like where he was lively and and flirtatious and goofy. And then just the the death, and it's tragic, <laughs> really tragic. Yeah. Uh, well, pivoting towards the uh, reductive rating round on uh, City on Fire, which for uh, you, Cam, is where we remove all the words, all the nuance, and reduce the movie between a number between one and five. But it's also turned into like final statements and closing statements. So if there's anything like you know we didn't uh, any any lines or scenes we didn't get to, we usually bring them up here as well that we yeah. made sure make sure we wanted to bring up but uh for me this one gets a uh really solid uh to maybe even a a, even a high four i think because i'm Mm. uh just so uh well versed in the sort of like heroic bloodshed drama of uh (laughs) stuff of of hong kong and 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 john woo's movies especially um there there was a lot of this that um you know, I was I was pretty familiar with, but the stuff that Ringo Lamb does that is different and that he hones into in the sort of the bluntness and gruesomeness and and um, existential quality on like a more sort of like intimate personal level, I I did find really really um, strong, and I I do think that there is. Um, you know, the way that he stylistically differentiates himself from Wu by not doing the sort of like controlled ballet and just that, that, that bluntness and that break, that sort of like, um, an entire city, uh, as is indicated by the title, like in this fiery psychological breakdown almost Mm. where you're a split second away from being gutted or being shredded with gunfire by someone who you, you know, maybe consider a a friend and the cops and crooks are both escalating each other until they kind of like burn everything down. It reminded me a little bit of sort of like Fritz Lang's M where Mm. we talked about that kind of like being like an entire, uh, sort of like, city uh point of view almost and in some of the action sequences when this extends to the full destruction on the entire streets this is what it kind of reminded me of a little bit and the the city kind of gone mad with hysteria and paranoia and these anxiety ridden sort of like crime set pieces and stuff like that so i think that the sort of like sweatiness and franticness of it is um a little bit 
different than, you know, what we would see from John Woo. And I definitely felt that by the time we got to the end of the film and it kind of merged its uh, police story, Jackie Chan-esque domestic comedy sequences with like a full-blown um, sort of extinguishing of a life on screen. And you definitely feel that. So yeah, uh, yeah solid four for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much in the same boat. Uh, just a couple highlights I wanted to mention uh, where one was the, that great, uh, one of the chase sequences with Chow, he, he starts sliding down like an escalator or, or like the railing <laughs> of an escalator and there's bumps in between each, like I'd say every like five to 10 feet and he just jumps and uses his ass to jump every single time and it's just a really great stunt and a great shot. Uh, and then another cool stunt was when he is uh, like holding on to the truck that that's that's driving down the road. Um, and I just wanted to mention those two because there's like some genuinely good stunt work in this too. Even though it's not the the focus of the movie, uh, there's just really nice little sequences uh, that are really tight and, and well done. Um, and then uh, there was one more that I wanted to mention. Oh yeah, one of my favorite scenes is with uh, him and Tiger, and they're it's like when they're having that true bromance moment, and they're just like in the car, and it's this great shot of them just flirting with these two girls that walk beside the car, and Tiger like puts a, a slushy or a drink or something into Chow's face, and it's it's straight out of a romantic comedy. They're laughing and looking at each other. It's 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 pure bromance. Um, yeah, and that, yeah, that 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 tonal stuff is is so funny. I I, I really love that that you brought brought it up but like the idea of the uh the killer you're pursuing being the guy driving you to the airport <laughs> yeah. for that third act rom-com set piece stuff that's so good that's so good oh, in yeah. construction yeah when like, i, I oh when i God. saw it i couldn't believe it i'm like is he driving him to the romantic comedy ending right now this that's fantastic <laughs> like so yeah stuff like that is great and to still be able to hold like really deep and uh, tragic drama w w throughout as well, and then the you know just the ending is is devastating. Uh, uh, For sure, yeah, it, it's very strong. Really good character work. So uh, I'm gonna have to dive into some Ringo Lamb because I don't know if I've seen anything else. Is has have we covered him before? I don't think so. No, this is the first time. First time covering Ringo Lamb. Yeah. It's actually my first. The only other things that I saw, um, I know that he did Prison on Fire and School on Fire. Um, after this, and he also did another one um, with uh, Chow Yun Fat and Simon Yam, actually called Full Contact. And I think he even eventually did some stuff with Van Dam. So yeah, I think uh, I saw maybe that. when we do some more Van Dam, we'll talk about him as well. Yeah, he did a film called Replicant with Van Dam um, that I have sitting around on DVD in my flat. <laughs> that nice, I didn't even nice. Watch for a while, but I wanted to. I wanted to get into um, his Hong Kong stuff before I uh, went through his American adventures. <laughs> Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. And replicant. That sounds that, like it might be like a sci-fi or something. With I think Van it is, Damme. yeah. Beautiful. I think it's like a sci-fi about him being a clone or something along those lines. It was director video, so you know it's gonna be good. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah, wait, hold on. There's there's one here. It, it's just okay. It, it's just called In Hell. <laughs> That's awesome. It's a Van Damme movie called In Hell that he released in two thousand three. <laughs> Um, so yeah, Cam, uh, for you, final, uh, final rating statements, etc. Yeah, I've, I'm more or less in the same boat as you two in that it's just this phenomenally visceral film, both in the moments of action that there are and in the emotions it's portraying, this existential crisis uh, of Chow Yun-Fat's character and just this 
very um, cold, well, this look at a very cold institution. Um, it doesn't so much produce heroes as it produces bodies. Um, mm-hmm. At the beginning, the beginning and end of the film, I mean, it's just bookended by these two undercover agents just both being snuffed out and just discarded. That I find I found that final shot extremely haunting um, in a way that I did not anticipate. So yeah. Um, I think, yeah, it's just so... Um, heroic bloodshed is something that at the moment more or less begins and ends with John Woo for me. Um, I'm, it's not like uh, I have kind of very broad um, knowledge of uh, Hong Kong action cinema, but not a very deep one. Um, so it's... Uh, been really um, fascinating to revisit this in all its sort of brutality and borderline nihilism um, <laughs> in the presentation of its characters. Just, yeah, it's um, incredible and Joy to the World should not have worked as a song for an action scene. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I forgot about that little, like, kind of like just, Christmas uh, sequence. It, it comes up twice, I think. Um, I can't remember the first. I can't remember the first instance of it um, coming up, but yeah, when it's just playing in this sort of like juiced up eighties drop, like kind of yeah. <laughs> electronic drum beat in the background, yeah, uh, as they've like jacked the taxi when the heist goes wrong, it's just insane. Um, <laughs> Definitely, just, yeah. Uh, Hell yeah! So is that a so, that, that's a, is that a, is that a four from you, Cam? I'd say, yeah, a high four, mostly because um, I know about the sort of exuberance of something like Full Contact, and I'm not sure I want to put a roof on uh, what Ringo Lime is capable of um, yeah. <laughs> just yet. Um, yeah, I got it. Something I'm definitely really um, excited to explore. Um, I've, I've, awesome. seen, I've seen like sequences from Full Contact that just look just out of this world, so I'm very excited to delve into more of his work. All right, well, I think that that's going to uh, wrap it up for City on Fire here. We are going to be right back. We're going to be talking about Deep Cover. Oh, are you an ambitious boy? They're going to kill us. They're not going to kill anybody. They're too valuable to them. There's no such thing as an American anymore. No blacks, no whites, no nothing. It's just rich people and poor people. Larry Fishburne. Don't blow your cover. Deep cover. All right, we are back and we are talking Deep Cover, the 1992 uh, American action thriller noir, neo-noir film starring uh, Lawrence Fishburne, Jeff Goldblum. Uh, and directed by veteran actor Bill Duke in what would have been his, uh, I believe, his second directorial um, okay. outing, correct? Because I think he did uh, Rage in Harlem before this. Yeah. I think gathered some acclaim, um, but mostly he'd been doing um, character actor work um, alongside the lights of Schwarzenegger and uh, other kind of staples of 80s action. Yeah, yeah, we uh, we've talked about him once before, obviously, because we we uh, on the show, obviously, we had to do Predator at some point, and we will do oh, yeah. Commando at some point too, where he's also oh, in Commando. Yeah. But that's how we're we're familiar on this show with uh, with with Bill Duke. Yeah, honestly, um, so I didn't cool even to know get a he directed to see him direct something. 
Yeah, I didn't know he directed, so this was this was great when I found out he, he was the one that directed this movie because it was about honestly halfway through before I even clicked on his name to see his face because I knew I knew a Bill Duke, but I didn't. I had no idea that he that he directed. So yeah, this was a great film, especially like you said, it was his second movie. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, because he's it, it's fantastic. Yeah, and, and this came out in uh, obviously 1992. So it, uh, this is uh, like a very interesting time period in sort of like the gangster movie starting to be a little bit more dated, where people not taking it quite as uh, seriously, except for obviously Goodfellas came out in 1990. People really loved that, and it kind of re-sparked people's interest in in making them. But like a lot of them aren't as you know acclaimed as a lot of the 70s and 80s gangster movies are in, yeah. in certain ways. But I personally really love Abel Ferreira's King of New York, which came out. Oh, in Oh, yeah. Andy, just two years before this. And uh, King of New York uh, cinematographer uh, Bojan uh, Bazzelli actually uh, shot this film as well. So okay. if you're thinking, you know what, these films sort of have a similar look and they also both have Lawrence Fishburne in them, uh, that's part of that. Uh, I also do love that this is the uh, last time uh, Larry was ever credited as Larry. Oh, nice! Because obviously he had a he had a career as a as as a, a young guy as as Larry Fishburne. He got started in like what like Apocalypse Now. I think he was only like fifteen or sixteen yeah. when that movie came out. Yeah. But uh, he was also I, we saw we talked about him once as the henchman in uh, Death Wish Two. <laughs> yeah. I think he's <laughs> which the is guy funny that gets because shot. Goldblum is also in de- the original Death Wish as the rapist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for real. And I think I think uh, Fishburne is the one that gets shot with the boombox or whatever in the second one. I'm pretty sure. Yes. <laughs> so he's got so. like one of the best deaths in in Death Wish Two. <laughs> Yeah, so 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 up to this point, he you know he was he was an exciting young actor, but uh, you know he was he was not getting a whole lot of of leading roles. You know he was kind of like a supporting actor. He was either playing like a sort of like a a small extra to being a full out supporting actor in something like uh, I think he was in Nightmare on Elm Street three. Mm-hmm. Um, he was also obviously in uh, one of Spike Lee's uh, early films, uh, School Days which is uh, fantastic, and he's great in that. There's actually a, a callback in this film to that film. Oh, okay, yep. Um, and then, obviously, there's uh, uh, King of New York that he was in, and then Boys in the Hood. And Boys in the Hood is a, was, a, was a huge thing that they used to market uh, deep cover. You can even, like, see uh, them call him, like, Lawrence Fishburne from Boys in the Hood or something like that in the trailer, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, but uh, deep cover... I was absolutely blown away by this. This is a fantastic movie. Um, and I really regret not checking out Bill Duke earlier because yeah. between him and Bojan Bazelli, who is just, I think one of the like most, uh, maybe not underrated cinematographers, but someone who uh, should be getting more interesting work than he is. Like he should be doing more than Mr. And Mrs. Smith's and hairsprays and uh, <laughs> underwater. Um, but like, you know, he works, I think, a lot with Gore Verbinski now. He did, like... Uh, uh, did he do Wellness? What's the big, the cure he for did wellness? Cure for Wellness. Oh, that and looks he did so the, good. He, he did The Ring, his version of The Ring as well. Damn. Um, Lone Ranger. The <laughs> Lone Ranger, yes, which per, uh, I know people don't like. Personally, I think that's a great-looking film, and the uh, the train set pieces in it are incredible. 
but he also obviously did a bunch of stuff with Abel Ferreira. He did King of New York. He did his um, Body Snatchers film as well. And also uh, Abel Ferreira's uh, China Girl, which is like uh, super, uh, like not super well-known Abel Ferreira, but like it's a really cool kind of like quasi uh, New York City grime, like West Side Story almost. Cool. <laughs> About like gangsters and stuff. But I think that... Um, Bill Duke and him together do something so incredible with the style in this. There's so much like of deep red and blue neon lighting, these yeah. really stylish montages and expressive camera work that uses uh, jump cuts and zoom cuts and wipes and Dutch angles and very, very intense and feverish style to it that I think is, is um, you know, uh, very poetic in its own way. And ostensibly the film is a, you know, a, a black exploitation ish gangster movie about an undercover cop who is infiltrating the drug drug game in LA. Um, and we kind of open on a, um, the character work that we talked about a lot in city on fire on how it gets sort of like moral and existential. This one gets right off the bat from the very opening scene where Lawrence Fishburne, who's giving this very hard boiled, um, sort of, uh, narration is talking about how his his dad was a junkie and around christmas time um you know his dad was taking him to the uh local liquor store and he was like snorting cocaine in the car while he's there yeah it's in like the 70s in cleveland i think it announces but he's basically showing his taking driving his son to where he is going to rob a liquor store and uh, outside there's like a, a Santa Claus cause it's Christmas time and Santa Claus is like, you know, giving him the ho ho ho's and the Merry Christmases. And the dad comes back out having just like shot up the liquor store being like, don't teach my son any of that fairy tale shit or whatever he <laughs> <Yeah>. says. <laughs> and then he says, uh, do you see as he's holding in one hand a gun and in the other hand he's holding money. And as he gets shotgunned in the back, basically spraying like chunks and viscera like all over the windshield on like a very yeah. tiny Lawrence. As, yeah, as tiny Larry just fucking watches his dad get destroyed. It's oh, brutally gunned. Tragic. Down. Again, yeah. a very kind of brutal opening from a strange perspective because like we're situated inside the car as like the blood sprays onto the window. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Like the whole time the camera is really just with with Lawrence. Like it's just the kid sitting there watching as everything goes on rather than ha going into the liquor store and like the dad shooting there and all that. It's really just from his perspective. Yeah, yeah, it's, which is which is really important obviously because this is a hugely impactful moment for him and, and yeah. he even says, you know, he decided in that moment that that would never be me, that he would never get involved in the drug game, he would never get involved with alcohol, he would never get in with with street hustling and and um, you know, for for money. There's even uh, you know, the uh, a shot of like the his father's hand in the bloody snow covering like blood-soaked money and stuff like that. This is a really impactful moment for him as a character right, and, and sets up how big the decisions he's about to make in this film are when he does choose to, you know, go undercover into the drug dealing scene. And I think it's like, there's such a sadness too to just, you know, seeing that, that kind of tragedy, your father robbing a liquor store on cocaine and then, you know, being shotgunned. And then that's the reason that you get into, uh, into policing because you want to help the community 
And the like the very first thing that we see when it transitions from him as a child to him becoming a cop is all of the African American people coming into the interview and being asked that disgusting question. Uh, and and, <laughs> yes. and it's like that's the initial thing that he gets when he enters into this world that, that he thinks is going to, you know, help the community and that's what he's striving to do. And there's just like there's just such a sadness to to, to that right away without it being exactly i don't know i guess it's obvious but it's because because it's it's a hard cut too right it's a hard cut to that would never be me to these series of interviews where basically a federal agent a a a white agent named carver is saying do you know the difference between a black man and an n-word and that is his opening question to these african-american cops who he is posing as possibly um, as as potential undercover agents for him, and the reason that he's asking is because he's he he wants to differentiate sort of like the people who see themselves as part of the street community and the people who are more indebted to themselves as the cops. Right, and he's lucky with Larry that Larry, because of his experience as a child, is more indebted to the to the police, but he does also have you know, this, um, this implied kind of sadness and rage and oh, repressed yeah. violence that is hidden underneath. And, you know, the, the guy sort of, um, tells him, he's like, you know, you, you have this sort of like moral code. Um, but like, basically you, you pass your tests, like you are a criminal, you resent authority, you have this rigid moral code, but you have no underlying system of values is what he says. Look at all your rage, repress violence, undercover, your faults will become virtues. If we have you pose as, you know, part of the community. And obviously he's very conflicted with this. So we, unlike city on fire, where it kind of takes a little bit of time to get us into that central conflict, this movie's opening montages. Yeah. That's one of the, (laughs) get you immediately into it. That's one of the things I noticed about this film right away was that there's no, there, there aren't a lot of scenes of just people like sitting and talking in the sense that it's not driving something forward. Every scene seems to be the next step in the in the uh, the operation that he's taking place uh, in, mm-hmm. and and this movie absolutely flies by. Like, there's not an ounce of fat on this thing. It, it just goes from you know meeting with the with the head officer, telling him to do all these things, like become a better drug dealer, just start spending the money, do do all this kind of shit. Immediately, it'll it'll cut right to him selling the drugs, and then right to him meeting with the with with the with the other dealers or the other people that he's working mm-hmm. with. Yeah, the movie really moves and is very stylish yeah, in that way. It's great. It's it's, it's very flies by. It's very upfront about um that uh racialized element in that they're using members of the black community as these like building blocks for this operation. Mm-hmm. That um, yes. I very I was very struck by <laughs> uh the candidate before um Lawrence Fishburne uh, receiving that question and then just being like what the hell did you say to me and just dragging the dude over the desk yeah. um, <laughs> uh, incredible and he's like thanks we're done incredible. here we're done here sorry yeah. <laughs> it's oh, just man. such an w- incredible moment right off the bat but also for me really clarified what they were what he was like you said what he was looking for yeah. in candidates for these things people who um, would differentiate themselves from other black people in this sort of they're looking for this sort of burgeoning internalized hatred yeah um, yes yeah and 
that that it's so upfront about that element in this operation rather than leaving it as something to be discovered it was was very striking to me um, mm-hmm. and what's sad yeah too like, is, I, is like immediately you are like the, this this carver federal agent dude is like immediately suspect <laughs> oh so yeah. clearly a piece of shit yeah <laughs> and yeah, what were you saying the, jamie uh, well, I was I, I kind of lost my thought a little bit, but I was it was um, okay. more it was along the lines of like there's just such a sadness to uh, him, like you know it, it, we said that it, he's looking for people that kind of have this like internal hatred, but Lawrence Fishburne more so has it, it's like this like unconscious, I guess inter- mm-hmm. I wouldn't even really call it like an internal mm-hmm. hatred when it comes to Lawrence Fishburne. It's more so like the way that the cop sees it. Rather than mm-hmm. rather than what Lawrence actually feels about it, because Lawrence feels like he really wants to help the community, but then as this goes and he sees that there's no real path to do so, that 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 kind of frustration from his childhood well, starts to come to the to the surface, right? Well, yeah, and not only no path to do so, but that the people he's working with are actively involved <laughs> in benefiting from it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. So, 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 like th- that's the thing is that obviously Lawrence Fishburne, he they're looking for someone who is African-American, who believes in the institution of police as someone right. who is going to do something good in his community. And he thinks that he personally, as an individual, is someone who can do that. And he's going to let this guy, you know, hire him to go undercover in, or- in order to do that. And as uh, Cam put, I think, uh, back when we were talking about City on Fire, there is this idea that he is doing this for the greater good is kind of the thing, yeah. is that he is, he is uh, you know, um, compromising his moral codes of not getting involved in drugs and not getting involved in crime because he sees it as a means to an end of these things and helpful because you're right. It's, he does have empathy for, you know, a lot of the poor community that he ends up uh, infiltrating and uh, similar to City on Fire, he ends up realizing that he identifies in some cases more with them than he does the people he's actually working with. Right. Um, in yep. in in certain ways, and I think that that is really important as we get to some of the developments made in this film because I think that this is uh, very secretly like maybe one of the most like complex and sort of like politically righteous um, versions of this kind of film that I've ever seen. Yeah, for sure. um, Where it actually takes on this very idea of, you know, it it begins again as that black exploitation crime movie of, you know, he's going to get involved with the dealers. And then it's the process of, you know, him getting on the streets and making the connections and, you know, doing all the things that he's going to do. And obviously this kind of film also undercover it, it usually applies the, you know, the men on opposite sides of the law moral contradiction, which is something we saw a little bit in, in City on Fire and we see in, in all kinds of these kinds of stories. But what it morphs into is just something so bleak and so existential and what is essentially honestly more less of any kind of sort of like uh, action or crime style movie than a straight up neo-noir about sort of like the systemic corruption itself the war on drugs itself as just this self-perpetuating machine that he is realized that he is a tool for and that all of this sort of you know the misery of the black and brown community that obviously he was so upset by in the opening scene he realizes that this is something that the systematically the institutions want it's good for them it helps them That's, maintain their wealth and their power. And so this idea of them putting on this performance of, uh, at one point Carver goes, you know why you're doing this, man? Have you forgotten? Crack babies. 
that's right dog yeah and it was so funny because that scene really stood out to me because that was used a lot very cynically um as like it's the fault of black mothers doing crack that is the it, the core issue and that is what we're policing here right and he the way that he uses that and in the movie it's used the exact same way it was actually historically Complete manipulation used on drugs yeah yeah yep. and it's just so crazy how Carver uses that and accesses Lawrence Fishburne's emotions about how upset, you know, sort of like the misery of his own community brings him. And he's like, that's why you're doing this. And then over the course of the film, he just realizes that, holy shit, the feds, the police, the politicians, everybody likes this system because it maintains their wealth and power that they have. And it actually takes it all the way to like literally uh, overthrowing Latin American governments, which is something obviously that if you look up sort of like the uh, George W, uh, uh, sorry, it's H.W. Bush. Uh, I'm trying to remember George Bush seniors because he would have been president at the time that this movie came out. And they actually cite him as someone who is golfing with these Latin American governments that are, (laughs) you know, sending the drugs in, which is just such a pointed thing to include in your movie in the year that they're having an election against George Bush versus Bill Clinton would have been the election that year. Like, that's insane that that is in just what is on its surface, you know, like a stylish gangster movie. Yeah. Um, So the fact that it ends up getting to all these different points like absolutely blew me away and we'll get into some of the specifics as we we kind of delve into it but that really becomes Lawrence Fishburne's struggle as he realizes that he is compromising his own individual ideals for the like systemic system uh, and and hell itself that is actually you know being unleashed on his community and that not only is he not helping them he's perpetuating the exact same thing that you know led to created his father yeah I like to the- cut in for a sec could i cut in for a sec oh for sure yeah, yeah. Go, ahead. go for it oh sorry um i was just thinking about um what you were saying about the system that he's perpetuating and i think just to put it shortly like maybe the main difference between this and city on fire and how it portrays that relationship between um, criminals in the government is, is I feel like in City on Fire it kind of embodies that sort of mirrored imagery of like the the, the very thin line between cops and criminals whereas City on whereas Deep Cover is very much about that connection just being this chain like a hierarchy yeah. that moves from the government itself down into these communities and I found that uh, sort of inextricable link between those organizations really fascinating and damning, like like you were saying, considering the years they were made. Yeah. Especially yeah. when you consider that Bill Duke's next film was Sister Act 2. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> yes. But uh, like the, the one, the lead officer, he has a line eventually where he's like, you know, we might as well just take advantage of the spoils of war. And it's like they, it's like <laughs> yeah. they, it's like they know. It, it, it's very strange because you know you'd think that their their plan initially, at least, would be to help the communities get the drugs off the streets, whatever. And as they've been doing this, and it's proved that none of this has worked. In fact, it's been getting worse, and it's just caused this this kind of war. Instead of you know regrouping and going, all right, well maybe we should tackle it a different way. They just they just straight up take advantage of it and and propel it forward and keep it going so that, you know, they just have a never ending stream of, of cash essentially and power. Uh, Mm -hmm. and it's just, it's just disgusting. And then it kind of leads to, you know, like Lawrence Fishburne with that great line where he's like this whole time I thought I was a cop trying to be a drug dealer. It turns out I'm a drug dealer trying to be a cop. Uh, yeah, it's just like, like that's one of the most, uh, 
compelling parts to this movie is all the scenes that aren't on the street, but when Lawrence goes back to the officer, like the initial one, where he just go, where he goes, look, I got like all this coke, like we can do something with this, get it off the streets, do something, whatever we got to do with it. And the guy's like, that's too much. It's out of our budget. So why don't you just go put it back onto the streets and become a just legitimate yeah. drug dealer? <laughs> yeah. Like he's just like, and then the, you're a drug dealer, deal drugs. Yeah, is the line. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then the next scene like, when he returns to that, you think, okay, maybe they'll, you know, gr- bring it back, uh, you know, get Lawrence into the proper spaces, whatever. But instead they, he's just like, you know what? Why don't you just spend that money? Get a nicer place. Live a little. You know, you're a drug dealer. You're <laughs> successful. Like he's just turning him into a drug dealer. It's 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 just. Uh, it was kind of like it, it's darkly, like it's not comedic. I don't want to say, but there's like this, this dark kind of like it, it's so dark that I found Is it the- almost funny that this is just well, like this yeah, never-ending that cosmic irony that yeah exactly um, yeah, comes exactly. with the territory like. The, so obviously um, this is tragic. Especially, <laughs> yeah, I mean the, um, the it being a noir, uh, sort of borrowing the elements of noir. That um, these moments are all punctuated by that sort of knowing retrospective narration from Fishburne, where it's just like, and this next thing I did was the biggest mistake I made in my life. Like that sort of <laughs> yeah. thing that you'd get with those films, and just espousing on the grim irony of this situation, um, and that use of voiceover. Um, I thought it was oh, really fascinating. Amazing. I read a really great thing um, by, I think it was Angelica Jade Bastian, um, who covered the film recently for Vulture, and she cites a, um, uh, it was, I'm just trying to remember the um, book name. Oh yeah, she cites a cultural historian um, talking about the sort of disembodied black voice um, and you mm-hmm. get, because like, you know, most so many films that in America that are about race are, so concentrated on the politics of like the abuse of the black, the quote unquote, the black body. And Mm -hmm. um, I think it's Michael, Michael Boyce um, who she cites argues that that specific use of voiceover is revolutionary purely because it's um, black film about being speculative and something other than being embodied, which is an idea Mm -hmm. that I think is really fascinating. And just this leveraging of film noir that is just never really done. Uh, I think that's just just a fascinating just a thought I bring that up is just I think it's a really fascinating way of how the genre plays into the film's politics yeah yeah well and I, I really love like um, like uh, a, a lot of the writing here is is really strong as well and he he just gets like some 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 great lines to deliver like even even just the way that because he, he delivers it in this very like hard-boiled detective-esque kind of way but also he has kind of like this this uh this mournful, um, obviously, as you said, sort of like, um, retrospective almost look to it where he's just like, you know, there's a montage of him first hitting the LA streets and there's all these Dutch angle dolly shots over like the Hollywood sign and there's wipes and jump cuts and, and zooms as he starts, you know, moving his way around. And what's his line? Like the, the filmmaking is so energetic and Bill Duke is is cutting it a lot of time to the energetic music that he's using in the film. And Lawrence Fishburne just very dryly is like life on the street is always the same. Yeah. (laughs) He's the coolest (laughs) motherfucker ever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So like, I, I, I really love stuff like that. There's a really wonderful line of narration where I think it's at the point where he's being pushed more and more into embracing his 
um, image as a, a drug dealer and he just go and he's starting to enjoy the quote unquote spoils of war as well. And he says something like uh, being a cop was never this easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he just yeah. like just did a very lo- drawn out long pause, which I really love. He's just, yeah, he's the coolest. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, it, it should be worth mentioning just in general. I think this is one of my new favorite, just Lawrence Fishburne performances in general. I think he's oh, yeah. absolutely insane here. Everything he conveys in just close-ups of his eyes um, and, and how, you know, sort of like, again, these, these complex feelings that he's having and these contradictions that he's having in someone who very clearly cares about his community and wants to see, you know, sort of like the pain and misery that he experienced with his father come to an end for everyone. Um, but he's actively pursuing something that's not actually achieving that, but he thinks it is. And there's, and there's so much, just pain in his face as he's doing that. And especially all the different ways that he's compromising himself in order to do that. The way that he's being pressured into, you know, becoming more of a drug dealer, as Jamie said, more of someone who's, who's living on the street. And then later in the film, um, for example, there is so much dramatic tension wrung out of the first time that he is going to kill someone. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a huge deal. It's a huge moral complication for him that he's just like, I am going to kill someone as an undercover cop. And he feels like very, very wrong about that. And, and part of this is sparked by his relationship with uh, Jeff Goldblum's character, who we haven't introduced yet, but he's sort of like a yuppie Jewish lawyer who is um, involved in, in, in the drug scene in LA. And he's sort of uh, sort of like a second or third tier higher up. He's, he, he's not dealing the drugs. He's got his own dealers. But, you know, he's he's not quite as high as the people that they're actually after. Yeah. There's a there's a meeting where Carver, the federal agent, like sits him down and says, "Okay, you're going after this right hand man, the nephew of a, you know, sort of a um, Latin American um, government official. He's the guy who's actually pushing the the drugs through. And ultimately, we may even want to get to the top guy. Um, which it's then obviously revealed later. They absolutely did not want to get to the top guy. Uh, <laughs> and it's a huge complication for, for Lawrence Fishburne's character, but he's told, you know, make your way up the chain until you get me to these two photos. Jeff Goldblum is one or two tiers just below those photos, but he realizes that Jeff Goldblum is an interesting figure in the drug scene because he's what they call sort of like a, a drug hobbyist, I guess. <laughs> He's not he's he's a lawyer. He's not someone who actually needs that money in any meaningful way. He's involved because it's just what rich people do. He's just like, yeah, I I have a lot of rich friends who do drugs and uh you know, I I just they got me into it. I kind of like some of the designer drugs. Yeah. And uh I kind of want to someday make some of my own. So his whole idea is to make enough money that he can basically start his own drug business. Um, basically on the side the dream but when we so, yeah when when we see his house he you know he's just a regular you know sort of like uh living a, a upper middle class domestic life with his wife and his kid and then all of a sudden he's got like scarface characters walking onto his porch <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> and jeff goldblum's not super stoked about that but similar to city on fire um, Lawrence Fishburne actually strikes up a bit of a friendship with Jeff Goldblum because he himself is, he's performing this moral compromise, but in some ways he actually is compromising some of his morals. And in a lot of ways, Jeff Goldblum, um, has also done that. Like Jeff Goldblum, when he's talking to him on a personal level, he's a fun guy. He's fun to hang out with. Yeah. He, uh, he's, he, he doesn't seem like the worst guy. Funny, on, charismatic. On the yeah. Um, so it's, he, um, he, he strikes up a relationship with him. 
it's a very strange uh, sort of inversion of I feel like a lot of films at the time like you'll get um, film a lot of crime films in particular about cops um, have that sort of parasocial bond between like white cops and black cops and you just have this weird inversion of it where um, you have that kind of cross-racial relationship between Jeff Goldblum's character and Lawrence Fishburne's but like uh, Goldblum's just re- remains kind of off-puttingly racist um, yeah. throughout, <laughs> and um, he—they uh, never—they never truly. Um, I don't think they ever truly understand each other. But um, uh, it reminded me like a little bit of what we see in City on Fire, but with this one, I don't think Lawrence. I think he may have moments of where he kind of starts liking David a little bit, but overall, I feel like there is an underlying, like a still a a. a hatred or, or, you're, or you're, a disrespect you're, you're for a, you're a scumbag in some yeah, ways. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and speaking too of like the way that, that David kind of uses and quote unquote appreciates black culture. It definitely feels like <laughs> yeah. he's, he's more of a, a vulture, <laughs> less, less of a, an actual person that appreciates it for, for, you know, good reasons. Um, uh, and Jeff, that was Jeff something Goldblum. I found interesting about his character too. Jeff Goldblum's line is so goddamn funny and their conversation is so funny because you're right and Lawrence Fishburne pushes back against him but oh, yeah. there's a part where, he's, where where they're hanging out and he's cheating on his wife and he comes he comes out of you know having sex with a woman and he's like goes up to Lawrence Fishburne and he's like why do I like bawling black chicks so much and then what does Lawrence Fishburne say? He says, <laughs> he says maybe maybe you feel like you're fucking a slave and Jeff Goldblum without missing a beat he says like, bond. like a bondage thing? <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then Fishburne's response, no, like a racist thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Extremely good. So fucking good. And then what I love too about David's reaction to that, he just makes another joke about it because Lawrence says something about like fucking his dad and his mom at the same time. And then, and then <laughs> David is just like, oh, how was he? Or something like that. Like he just starts going with the joke. So he's like an outlandish, crazy, funny dude. But... But definitely has some some horrible traits. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think yes, Jeff Goldblum, considering his character, he plays him very charismatically, and I think that that's why Lawrence Fishburne, like more than anyone else who he's dealing with, he actually does try to work with him yeah. and sometimes enjoys the time that he spends with him <laughs> in a in in an interesting way. And as he, because I I don't think it's a level of he ever gets that intimate level of friendship yeah, with no. him the same way of something like City on Fire. But what I do think is that he morally compromises himself enough that he feels like he's taken himself down to Jeff Goldblum's level. Yes. I mean, at a certain point, he quits the force and just becomes le- legitimately yeah. his partner. Just starts doing coke and going crazy. Yep. Yeah, and and obviously by the by the end of the film, this gets a little bit more complicated, and he makes uh, certain elements. He makes his way back. He cuts himself off from both. But there is a stretch of the film where he is just Jeff Goldblum's fifty-fifty partner, and he he is like not he he actually thinks that that is a more moral choice than continuing to work with the force um, at that point. Um, until obviously some some elements complicate that later in the film. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, getting back to um, Lawrence Fishburne and obviously the, the sort of like direct way that Bill Duke depicts this moral compromise, I was really impressed with the sequence where he kills the dude. Ivy, I think. Who, uh, Ivy, yeah, and, yeah. And he, yeah, and he quotes uh, Terminator on the street. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and he's just like, you seen that one? Go rent it. <laughs> 
I'll be back. <laughs> yeah. Dude, um, speaking of Ivy, just briefly, like his whole look is amazing. He's, you know, very kind of small side character or whatever, and he dies, I'd say, like half hour, 45 minutes in or something. But this dude is just absolutely jacked. He, he wears like like super <laughs> colorful b- vests, but but with sleeve with no sleeves, so that you could obviously just see those giant guns. And then he hangs out with this this blonde white chick that has like a military hat on. It's almost it's it's like Nazi esque, <laughs> honestly. It's it's just so. Crazy. It looks like a music video. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, and they're in this absolutely. like red convertible just speeding down the fucking uh, downtown streets. It's just, what a wild character. Well, and, and the first be- time we're introduced to him, he's shooting a kid dealer on the street. Yeah, yeah. And that scene is time. horrible. Like the, the, the neon red lit alleyway as the kid's running away in slow motion, he just like guns him through the back of the head. Yep. And everyone comes over and looks at it and no one is like mourning it or freaking out. Everyone's like, oh, that's another another day here. Yeah, and yeah. people start taking the money from the kids' pockets <laughs> and things like that. It actually reminded me a little bit of um, I don't know if you've seen this cam, uh, Spike Lee's uh, Clockers. Clockers um, is like one of the few I haven't seen. <laughs> oh, Clockers! Uh, well, it, it, it's worth noting Clockers uh, was a huge inspiration on The Wire, so it's very similar to that. It's 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 very sort of like a almost journalistic procedural about sort of like drug dealing on on the streets and how the kids get involved in some of the violence and stuff like that. But Spike Lee directs it with a a, a bit more of a a warmth and romantic quality of something that he would include in like Twenty Fifth Hour. Okay. So that's what kind of separates right. it a little bit from The Wire. But this scene where the kids gets gunned down felt like straight out of clockers because it has that sort of that really painful journalistic realism of the reality but done in this very stylish heightened yeah. format and even just the lighting in that scene because again the the dude who kills him is practically a cartoon music video character <laughs> oh yeah and the, and, and the lighting in that scene is as well yeah, yeah. <laughs> just insane so, moment so yeah there, there there's just this this complex like um emotional quality that comes out of the heightened style and the sort of like painful realistic quality of it um and so that's how we're introduced to this guy and eventually um this guy because jeff goldblum and lawrence fishburne have started this partnership and they're uh you know going up the hierarchy in 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 the drug game um this guy kills one of his um dealers and then you know jeff goldblum and lawrence fishburne they both kind of realize you know what like we can't have a guy just kill our dealers and we can't respond back because it makes us look weak and we'll get taken over so they decide together that they have to kill this guy and it can't be someone that they just choose because it's not it's not them whoever does this is going to get you know sort of like the credit for doing it and the sort of implicit power of it and i i love lawrence fishburne's line that he gets here i can't remember exactly what it is but to paraphrase it's basically like by by us you mean me <laughs> yeah um, because jeff goldblum as the yuppie lawyer is not going to be going into the street and gunning someone down and that's where you get into some of the more sort of like implicit racism he's like well you're the guy you're you're the guy who looks like the guy who would go and shoot a guy yeah yeah <laughs> so you've got to go and do it you know yeah. um and when lawrence fishburne realizes that it just it it hits him and he has he's so nervous he's got to work his way up to do it and the way that bill duke films this and like all the colors in the club and the slow motion and the angles that he chooses and as lawrence fishburne builds himself up to go and do this killing 
I was also thinking and, about how um, in that specific in that specific moment, like you've got all this kind of garish red and blue lighting of the club, but it sort of just drains away into that just kind of very plainly lit. Yeah, the fluorescent um, lit bathroom, club. right? Yeah. Like it kind of, it's just that when he walks in, it's just that sort of almost paled wall and the, um, the sort of horrible, like, you know, there's just like black club bathrooms. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just like in that moment where he's got to steal himself to do it and, and the mask is kind of starting to slip and, and just the color leaves the scene for a second. is just, I thought it was really phenomenal. And you add to that yeah. filth too, when he like turns around and right before he's shot and you got the oh squib work, he just starts pissing on Lawrence like shoes or whatever, you know, like yeah, he's, he's, he says, want a suck or a drink? Yeah, That's what he oh says. God. Oh, God. Classy man right there. <laughs> Just well, one, and, and, what and, and, a and, way to go out. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and that's what's so funny yeah, is that there, there's nothing, there's nothing cool or dignified about this scene. Very specifically, no. Which which is which is very sort of different than we would get in something like the heroic bloodshed movies, where there is almost a cool factor to these characters. When Lawrence Fishburne kills this guy, you you hate this guy. All we've seen is him kill people and kill a kid. Yeah, and, yeah, and and just and just be like an asshole to everyone, get into fights, and so this is like the one moment where you would be like, yeah, you know, shoot that guy, it, right? <laughs> whatever, and it's still the fact that Bill Duke still turns it into a giant moral quandary, <laughs> and that it feels so terrible and you so can't undignified. Yeah, and because immediately yeah, after he shoots him, you know, it's cut to outside in the shadowy blue rain where Lawrence Fishburne is basically having like a panic attack on sort of like the the ladders on the sides of the brick buildings. And then and there's like these close up Dutch angles of him in his own like orange lit bathroom as he's like freaking out looking at himself. And, and when he goes to the to the officer and tells him about it or whatever, and the officer is like, so what was like, what was it like to to kill the drug dealer or whatever? And and he because the, throughout the, the lead officer has been saying this stupid line of like, well, I'm God, so I know everything. I know and, everything, and yeah. And so fucking Lawrence is just like, like, well, you're God, so you know how it felt. And just coldly like, just says, like, fuck you for even putting me in this situation, essentially, but without actually well, saying yeah. it. And, 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 he, and trying to like milk the grimy details from me as if they're entertainment. Yeah, He's exactly. Like, they weren't. Yeah. It felt terrible. Like, I just killed a that, man, you fucking asshole. <laughs> That moment of where he sort of be finally becomes an instrument of the state, like actively like killing members of his own community. And then, like you said, it becomes a sort of source of lurid entertainment. It's just, you know, that kind of that really hit me uh, yeah. considering like, um, you know, ongoing um, affairs in the States at the moment. But what struck mm -hmm. me perhaps the most was in the writing of that narration when I think it's happening when he's back in his room and he's just reflecting on what the hell just happened. And he just goes, I'd killed a man um, who looked like me, uh, whose mother and father looked like my mother and father and nothing happened. Um, yeah. He, he says, no one came after me. No one did anything. I could have killed others if I wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because he, he immediately associated crime with punishment because of his father's right. death. And, and now he's realizing that it's obviously more complicated than that. There isn't just yeah, the people just political, who do bad really. things and the people who who kill the people for doing bad things. There's a lot more um, moral complexity to what is happening to him. And that just gets thrown more into disarray as he gets deeper and deeper because now he's like, I'm committed. I've done terrible things. This has to mean something. Yeah. Um, so this this has to and and as he just gets further and he descends further 
into it. You know, Bill Duke is filming this whole thing again very stylishly, but it, it I, f- I find around this scene is where it just gets even more sort of like hypnotic and depressing mm. to watch as he just gets kind of deeper and deeper. And, you know, he, he starts, you know, messing with, with uh, Jeff Goldblum and some of the other um, dudes in his circle trying to, like, pit them a little bit against each other so he can sort of climb his way up. Because, again, he's trying to make his way up to um, – who's he trying to get to? I forget. There's there's Barbosa, who I think is the guy who Jeff Goldblum works with, who looks like a character straight out of Scarface. He looks like one of, like, the, yeah. the, the uh, Colombian guys or something like that. And then I know there's a guy um, named Felix, unless that's Barbosa, unless it's Felix Barbosa. I think it is Felix, Barbosa, oh, okay. but they're they're trying uh, Gygos. That's who it is. Gygos. Uh. They're trying to get um, to him, um, and I think his uncle is Hector Guzman, who is um, a guy that they um, are trying to take out at first because they think that he is the guy who is actually you know shipping the drugs into the country. That he's the top dog. Mm-hmm. But uh, what does he find out? That, you know, as he's pitting Barbosa and Jeff Goldblum sort of against each other, they they find out, you know, briefly that, like, Barbosa is an informant. There's this whole chase scene and uh, scene with, where the, the local cops are trying to capture Jeff Goldblum and, and Barbosa. And um, Carver basically tells him to, like, not get involved in that. And he's like, what the fuck do you mean? How do I not stop this? Like this, these are the guy. These guys are how we're going to get to the next level. Can't you just tell the cops to like not fuck with us? Yeah. And they basically say, you know, I can't get involved in local law enforcement. I don't really have that power. And he's like, you're God. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were God, bro. <laughs> how do you not have that power? And then so he realizes something is immediately up: the fact that he's being told to stop what he's doing as he's getting so close to getting the two guys they supposedly want. Yeah. And then he finds out after all that goes wrong, there's a huge um, moody um, sort of ambush deal scene where all the cops are hanging out on the fence, like all lit up in neon red as the deal is going down below. And Lawrence Fishburne like drives Jeff Goldblum and Barbosa in the back of a limo driving away from the cops. He's like nailing cops in the car, driving the limo. Um, Jeff Goldblum has realized that Barbosa was an informant the entire time. And the fact that, you know, he has his own sort of subplot about how he doesn't get respect from all the other guys. Yeah. Uh, because that he's just slap like, hand you know, some... game is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. I was going to bring that up. Yeah. Well, let's bring that up after, because I do love this uh, this this highway chase scene too with 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 David because like him just starting to pop Felix just in different body parts before he's forcing him to jump out of the moving car. It's just there's so much tension in this scene. It's ridiculous. Well, and then you have over yeah. and over again like Felix the Rat. Yeah, <laughs> Felix the Rat. And the way that he's delivering it, he's so excited because he's yeah. like all of a sudden he is more he has less respect than Jeff Goldblum does now because Goldblum is more committed. He's not a rat. Yeah. So Jeff Goldblum is just like screaming and shooting in the back of the car as Larry is like, "You got to stop, man! Like, fuck it. We're, I'm trying to make sure that you know we keep this guy yeah. so that you know we can we can get to the next level." And but uh, all Jeff Goldblum can think about is how this guy disrespected him and now how he gets to disrespect him and it's in it's quote unquote you know a, there's a there's a uh, an ethical code criminal code reason for doing that yeah and dude when he pushes him out of the car and the cop car just runs him right <laughs> over great dummy the, the shot dummy, 
Oh. The dummy work on that made me like physically recoil because of how fast it is, how fast it hits him. And then, and then you and have just runs like, him over. and what's these two details are amazing because right before he jumps out of the car or is pushed out of the car, Lawrence Fishburne, as he's driving, just gives this like animalistic scream, like that 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 happens right before he jumps out. And then when it cuts back to the car, uh, Goldblum is like out of the window and he yells at him like. Like something about getting shrimp motherfucker or something like that. I can't remember (laughs) exactly, but it's like, it's just a really outlandish, funny, uh, loud delivery. And it's, it's what an incredible sequence. It's so good. Yeah. Well, and, and that, and that rage in him expressed through like Lawrence Fishburne's performance is so, is so kind of key to, and, and Jeff actually brings it up earlier in the film with a line where he says, uh, you have the gift of fury. You're a dangerous, magnificent beast, is what he calls him. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. And, and he's like, "Shut the fuck up." <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, Goldblum delivering all these lines is just, this is a, one of the best Goldblum performances as well. Like God tier Fishburne, God tier Goldblum. Like uh, yeah, the fact that you have both of them at the top of their game for these yes. for these roles just makes them that much. And such a stylized movie, movie too. Oh, it's beautiful. Goldblum's like kind of rambling energy is just so well suited to this character because he yes. just seems like just b- because it suits his confidence when he's in his own element, when he's in the courtroom and he kind of just walks all over people. And then when he's kind of under people's heel and, you know, we just sort of stammering a little bit more and then that evolves into more confidence and just yeah. weird quips. And it's just, he's so perfectly suited for it. It's just in, I'm surprised he hasn't done more like heel turns like this. Cause he's so I know. fucking good at it. I didn't even know there was a performance like this from Goldblum. Like I'm, I'm, I really wish I watched this earlier. It's, 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 uh, it's fantastic. And I don't hear a lot about it, to be honest. I don't, I don't know why. Yeah, no, it, it definitely should be because Goldblum's incredible, and it's, it's so specifically suited to again playing just kind of like this, uh, this kind of yuppie like upper middle class character <laughs> yeah. who his involvement in this is is purely recreational. It's right. like he's he, he's just like like he's someone who could decide that he quits and just go back to being a yeah, lawyer he doesn't need to having, do this. you know a nice house and a family and all his comfort is coming at the expense of you know Lawrence Fishburne's uh, friends and family that's the idea yeah is that Lawrence um, Fishburne's involvement in this is so much more um you know, um, I guess, uh, personal and existential. And even like Goldblum's family though, he's willing to sacrifice their relationships too. Like there's that one amazing scene where he's talking to his wife and his wife just breaks it all down and is like, look, you're a wealthy person. You have a, a, a beautiful <laughs> daughter, a beautiful wife that love you and want to be with you. What more do you want? And he responds with, I want my cake and to eat it too. <laughs> <laughs> so like Which only get a Goldblum's mouth. Yes, amazing. dude. Only Goldblum could have made that actually cool. Like it's just it's an unbelievable line. Great delivery and just you know it's it's a great scene to just kind of blatantly show exactly where his mindset is. The changes just like in his costume as well uh, and how it contrasts amazing. with Lawrence Fishburne's one when they're both sort mm. of starting to embrace the imagery of like being these partners in like a lucrative, like lucrative Dude, drug by, dealers. By, by the yeah. end, they look like they're in Miami vice. Oh yeah. Like it's, Goldblum has like slicked black, uh, back hair yeah, and, and the long black trench coat. That's like leather. And Oh my God, just 
it just kind of Rip. it lends itself to this uh, i was just thinking about like is this how they perceive like kind of these successful people yeah, in this line yeah. like to look like and it's like these di- very different images because like lawrence fishburne is now dressing in suit like expensive suits mm. uh mm-hmm. of the kind that um goldblum would be wearing earlier in the film whereas he's gone full like you know like i'm wearing these like tr- leather trench coats and slipping <laughs> back my hair yeah <laughs> it's just just that just the, the simplicity of that like kind of those sort of like inverse like changes in them i think it's just so fascinating yeah um, i agree yeah well and and after this stuff with um barbosa this takes us into kind of like the final stretch of the film the final like half hour ish of of the film and the part where lawrence fishburne's like all of his sort of um anxiety and paranoia about you know how what he's doing is so clearly feels wrong on a street level on the on the intimate level that he's experiencing all of these events this descent that he's in mm. nothing about it seems like it's a good thing or it's preventing bad things from happening if anything he's just partaking in the bad things and he feels like more of them are happening because he's pretty good at the work that he does and he's being um, constantly reminded too because we have that character that kind of pops up every once in a while that seems to be like he grew up in the community and now he's become like he helps the police but he also seems to be one with god a lot of the time and he's the guy that, oh, that the detective Lawrence, he calls the reverend yeah 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 um it seems like he is kind of like this reminder for lawrence as the film goes on that it's like this is what you were trying to do you know like this is like mm-hmm. what you want to strive to do help your community um so it is interesting to constantly have that that he's struggling with as well just like a character like remember your community even though he's too overwhelmed and too much going on well, because because technically that guy's on a lower rung than than he is. I right. mean, he thinks he's talking to just a street guy, but he's undercover. Um, so there's there's the, this element where that guy is technically also being kind of used by the system, but he he can feel more, I think, morally righteous about it because he's working on such a small scale that yeah. he feels like you know he is point blank on the street taking drugs off the street. That's his basic thing. And what Lawrence Fishburne is realizing is that he's compromising himself to get to that greater good, realizing that that greater good is really never going to come as yeah. Carver basically straight up admits to him is he's just like, look, the state department, we like Hector Guzman. Now he's going to run for president and maybe <laughs> we can have some power in some of these Make countries. Some money. So we're going to help him. And Lawrence Fishburne gets this this god tier line where he's just like, so okay, so what what's the deal now? He helps you fight communists, you let him bring drugs into the country to sell it to minorities and use me to do it. Yeah. Um, and he's he's like freaking out, and he's just like, oh, you're getting all conspiracy and paranoia on me. And it's so funny because like at, like we now know because of like Iran Contra and stuff like that, we we know that a lot of the stuff actually did happen, and the CIA yeah. was like literally selling cocaine. Um, uh, to get help in overthrowing governments and stuff like that. But what does the guy say to him? He says, you know, man, before it was all, oh, dude, crack babies. That's why we're doing all this, yeah, right? This is so I bad. Care. Like, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it, 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 it's black women being addicted to drugs. That's the issue here. Yep. Uh, and now, and now he's saying, you know what? It's all bullshit, man. Let's just go to Washington. Yeah. You know, we did a good job here. Uh, maybe they'll <laughs> give us a bigger budget. Um, so, you know, it's no longer about the lives of, you know, his friends and family that's been sold to him. It, it never was. Policing drugs has been revealed to just be another tool in, like, a yep. global capitalist economy, basically. It was purely and manipulated. He gets, so, he gets so disillusioned by that 
that he just full out becomes Jeff Goldblum's 50-50 partner. They, <laughs> yeah. they shoot, uh, they shoot Gygos in a, in a rep movie theater. They just gun him down in, in, in the deal. Um, and they steal like basically like a, a bunch of his money and, uh, they basically sell it back to Guzman where they say, we'll give you 80% of your money back that we took. If we can keep 20% of it, to start our designer drug business, basically. And there's so many cool elements in this where they're dealing with Guzman because Guzman has diplomatic plates because Guzman, Guzman is a like a actual um, political ally of George Bush. Oh. So they're literally being like, we are now directly dealing with the highest tier. And in this, he's he's come to the realization about the war on drugs, again, as this self-perpetuating machine that involves money and politics and control, and that they don't really want to have an end to it because there's so much cash flow and it's so beneficial to the State Department guy just wants a bigger budget. The, <laughs> yep. uh, you know, Jeff Goldblum just wants a bigger house. You know, like this is all of this stuff can only come at the expense I- of directly the black and brown misery that Lawrence Fishburne has been trying to um, prevent this entire time. And it's so fascinating, even just on a procedural level, watching the cop be like, well, I can't really take this guy because he's got diplomatic plates. I can't arrest the guy who's here on official political business (laughs) with our country. (laughs) Yeah. And I also love like uh, Goldblum or David's kind of breakdown of his thought of just where he is now like like the 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 thought of any helping of a community is completely just gone now there's there's nothing left and his one line that he says to them when he's trying to make the deal and negotiate he's like uh, i think you know that there's no such thing as an american anymore no hispanics no japanese no blacks no whites no nothing it's just rich people and poor people and the three of us are all rich so we're on the same side <laughs> Yeah. It's just so what good. Unbelievable line. It's so yeah. so good. And, and there there is some sort of like uh like poisonous irony a little bit too to having the Jeff Goldblum character be delivering like what is essentially like the thesis of the movie at that point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, that, that, that line is, is super good during that deal. And that, this is again, when, uh, Jeff Goldblum and Lawrence Fishburne are now, you know, they're in full sunglasses and suits. <laughs> right. And, yeah. Hair slicked um, back, long French Miami coat. Vice. <laughs> yeah. And the, the detective th- shows up to, uh, like interrupt this deal essentially. And I love that he goes and he's like, Guzman, like he goes up to him and he's like, are, are, are you okay? Like what, what's going on here? And his line where he's just like, I keep my money in the bank. Thank you for your concern, officer. (laughs) 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 Because again, this is a respectable, uh, performatively, this is a respectable person, Um, a a member of the uh, financial and political um, economy of the United States. But we know it as now, you know, this is just, that's how in bed all of these people are in this system. And Lawrence Fishburne, um, unfortunately gets involved like in a uh, drug shootout here where I believe the detective's name is Taft. Uh, Taft is 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 shot uh, in this scene and he's like bleeding out and Lawrence Fishburne um, is, you know, like he, he has like a, a very existential, again, crisis about this, this moment because the detective is basically trying to um, arrest them 
And he's just like, you don't under, like the detective, you just have no idea how big this is. Like arresting us isn't going to do anything. Um, There is no way that policing this situation is going to, you know, actually prevent what's happening. But the guy so believes. Basically, we're looking at where Lawrence Fishburne was at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. You see another world where Lawrence Fishburne is this guy who's like, I believe in the institution of policing. To the very end. And I'm going to stop this situation from happening. And my God, when Jeff Goldblum just looks down at him holding his bloodied body and is like, the same people that taught us virtue are the very ones who enslaved us, baby. And he just shoots him in the head. And Lawrence Fishburne's reaction to that and the look and the misery on his face. Yeah. Unbelievable. And there's something about like the, the way that he delivers that line too. he's got this like nice close up, and it's, it's right before he shoots the guy, right? It's, he hasn't done it already. Yeah, It's before. So to me, it gave me this, this like last little like it's almost it was almost like he felt like the devil giving him a final deal where it was like look you've seen the corruption you've seen that there's no good or bad really it's just all just horrible so just join me they you know they've enslaved you so just let's let's split the 500 million dollars and there's just like this slight moment right before he does shoot him that i it, it felt almost like uh like the devil giving him a deal kind of thing um and then, yeah, just the ruthlessness of- Sorry, I was just going to say, just like, just that it is that the moment where um, Fishman's character like finally reveals himself as being a cop, and yeah. his reaction is to basically just shrug it off with that line. Yes. Um, yes. He's like, I don't care. Re- Let's just keep doing what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, where he's, yeah like, he's fully embodying that uh, perspective, that rich and poor perspective. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, he's he, he's totally just being like, it doesn't matter what you were. You could just be a partner with me still. We could just leave right now. Yeah, he's like, because um, I know what you're capable of. <laughs> but obviously, uh, Lawrence Fishburne's character is just so much more like this um, war on drugs crisis is so much more personally impactful to him. He has skin in the game in a way that Jeff Goldblum doesn't. And Jeff Goldblum's like, who cares? Let's just leave. Let's just get out of here. We don't even have to come back. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And what he's just symbolically witnessed is basically the person who he sees as previously as morally righteous, someone like him. He sees how they lose, how the pain continues, and the rich people just get richer. That is what the 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 sort of overall allegory that he's seen in that final scene is that the Guzman gets to leave you know, with, with no issues, Jeff Goldblum gets to escape with all his money. And the only people that are going to die and continue to die are the people he's seen on the street, the people that he's killed and the people who genuinely want to see an end to it. Like this detective Taft character. Right. And also, by the way, this is where the shout out to school days comes in. Uh, David or uh, Jeff Goldblum gets to say, uh, wake up over and over again as Lawrence Fishburne is obviously in this sort of like almost uh, this, this sort of like <laughs> haze that he's in. Oh yeah. And that's, uh, that's the line that um, Lawrence Fishburne gets to say over and over again, directly to the camera in school days. He basically just yells, wake up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. Oh my God. This, this final scene. And then obviously Lawrence Fishburne, he realizes, you know, that, you know, going off with Jeff Goldblum and just ignoring this to him would be just as bad. Yep. And, um, yeah, he, he gets in, in, in a gunfight, um, with him and even just watching them shoot each other again, there's nothing spectacular or re- even cool. Yeah, they about just it stand at all, and start but- shooting until one of them gets hit. 
Yeah, and and even Jeff Goldblum being a scumbag, you he's kind of like a charismatic, understandable scumbag. He's, yeah. he's basically just nihilistic. Right. He's basically just someone who's like, this is all meaningless. Who cares? And Lawrence Fishburne can't believe that because you know of you know who who he is. Yeah. Je- Jeff Goldblum, because of the color of his skin, can separate himself from that. But Lawrence Fishburne is like, it's I can't. Yeah. Um. This this matters. This matters to me more. And yeah, watching him just sort of like shoot him, uh, and again, he doesn't feel good about it. There's nothing to feel good about by the end of this film, even as he goes to the courts and his superior, you know, he, he praises his superiors and is like, you know, we, we took down this, this high profile drug ring and it was because of all the work of the amazing FBI and federal (laughs) agents and all of this, but also basically praises all these people. He knows they're fucking evil. And then in the court, yeah, he captured video of Guzman doing a deal with them. And it's like, so here's a friend of uh, a golfing buddy of George Bush <laughs> so peace dealing out. with us. <laughs> he just like pieces out. <laughs> He's like, deal well, with he's that. Sort of, um, he's sort of coerced into that, uh, into sweet talking, um, or like talking up the DEA um, in that trial where they basically got... Um, his girlfriend and like a subordinate of his and um, David's, uh, they've kind of got her on her way out of the country and they're basically like going to charge her with something unless he like talks up like the, how successful the operation was, how it all went swimmingly thanks to um, the DEA agent and the actions that they took. And then he kind of just drops that. Uh, he goes along with the plan right up until the moment where he's just like, oh, and I have this t- tape to show the court. And he just drops it in like a bomb <laughs> in the middle of it. And it's so it's so wonderfully timed. And also yeah. um, part of this moment that you um, that w- what you came to with um, Jeff Goldblum's character and his sort of nihilistic detachment from everything. Um, I think that coupled with the moment where he sort of manages to scramble out from underneath the DEA with that tape is kind of like the film starting to shed its noir influence as well. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, like where, where a sort of noir film is like a little more um, nihilistically detached in the same way that um, Jeff Goldblum might be. And um, in the guise of that genre, this film might have ended with um, probably would have ended with Lawrence Fishburne dying at that point. But he neither dies as a criminal or a cop, but he sort of, li- well, to some extent, liberates himself from both of those, well, from that one institution. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's really fascinating, like, that he um, escapes in that way and that it defies the genre in that way uh, for, sure. for something, mm-hmm. um, reckoning more with the personal consequences of everything that's happened. Um but he's because, like you said, there's still no, there's no real, um, there's no positive resolution or no positive resolution possible given all that's happened, and then that money that he's left with is he's just like, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, because 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 he basically just tells you like, look, this contradiction exists in the real world politically, and if you're a black man living in that country, you're just going to have to live with that contradiction. So he doesn't get the escape route of death, even though, you know, for many people that he's seen in the community and in this story, it has been, but he's just like, there's something interesting in the choice that Lawrence Fishburne is like, I just have to live with that knowledge now. And I think his final lines are, you know, 
um, it's an impossible choice, but in a way we all have to make it. What would you do? That's what he sort of at lens. So he, they really do want you to focus and think about that, you know, that, that dilemma that, that he's under. Yeah. Uh, also that, um, very kind of cyclical image of him placing the, uh, blood money on the grave of, right. What was it? His, uh, neighbors, his neighbor's grave. Um, one of those sort of victims, um, Oh, was it? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she, she, she like ODs, I think yeah. um, earlier in the film. And he's yeah the, of, the, the 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 woman who has the 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 single mom. Okay, I, I, I didn't I didn't actually I, notice the name on the the tombstone. I just assumed it was him visiting his father's grave, but I, I could be it was, wrong. Um, it could have gone either way. Um, I didn't. Yeah, I, I had both the thoughts either, to be because honest. he took the son there. Oh, okay. And he because t- he took the son yeah, there, he, so I figured it might have been her. But then I suppose like not knowing is kind of part of the point. Like this sort of broad spectrum of victims. There's a uh, lot of true. bodies in the ground. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One bit of blood money. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, and also, this is a, a really minor uh, point, but I thought it was a funny little connection. I do like that both these movies end with an officer clocking the superior officer and not being charged for it. <laughs> really awesome connection there. <laughs> that's, why I, totally. that's why I picked him, baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's I, the deep I, connection I, right I, there. I, I totally forgot that he uh, he totally clocks Carver right in the face outside the courthouse. <laughs> yeah, they were like, "Dude, why the fuck would you do that? Why would you pin Guzman? Like, we have all our political uh, eggs in in that basket." And he was just like, "Yeah, fuck you all." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, just a a really small moment which I thought was just so fucking funny. Like to follow up on the punch is I think it's um, Lawrence Fish- like Russell's attorney. Uh, she just like kind of touches him on the shoulder or something like, <laughs> and walks past him just like, well, this very sort of demeaning little gesture from her. And I was just like, where did he hire this person? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, this, this, this is such a, a, a good film. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, pivoting towards the reductive rating round, this one actually first time watch cut the five for me. Nice. Um, I'm so, I close. was absolutely, I was honestly like blown away by yeah. both you know, Bill Duke's, um, you know, sense of style, the insane wipes and jump cuts and Dutch angles and the expressive neon colors and, and the feverish montages and everything. And it, the whole thing just has this really stylish atmosphere that is swings between, you know, Lawrence Fishburne's character, his intense, like righteous rage at obviously the, the, the misery that he sees in his own community, but then also this kind of like mournful, sensitivity at the same time and the way that it switches back and forth between the two I found incredibly infect, uh, effective yeah. on like a, a, a visceral level and again the way that he complicates scenes like his first killing and turns it into a really really huge moral dilemma and the way that this is so like uh, politically charged and on a personal character level at the same time it's both things at the same time I love Larry's arc of being so viscerally traumatized and having such a moral code against the idea of drugs and crimes and he sacrifices and compromises that because he's told by the institutions that um, you know that they are going to fight it that on their surface they're going to do it for um, a, a moral good a greater good um, and he sees that pain and he wants to prevent it and and you completely understand that 
um, on, a, on an individual character level for him until he's confronted with that giant systemic beast yeah. that is just kept alive and uh, because it's beneficial for his higher ups, for the wealthy friends, for, you know, the budgets. It, like, I love that it doesn't just pin it on, you know, sort of like the, you know, the, the rich people in it recreationally, like Jeff Goldblum. It's also on the, the federal government's budget. They're just like, this benefits us. If we do, if we crack down on crime, and we're, we make the appearance of looking like we're doing that. It looks good for us. We get paid more. Yeah. So that's a reason for them to keep it going. Um, and yeah, so just so to to watch, you know, all these characters who don't take any of this shit home with them. You know, you, we assume Carver also has an upper middle class life. We assume everyone else in this film sort of does that they have an existence outside of this war on drugs. Right. But Lawrence Fishburne's entire existence is just infected by it, and his performance. The way that he expresses all that pain and betrayal and rage and empathy all simultaneously, I think that this is a gangster movie and a black exploitation and a neo noir that should be held to the same esteem as like some of the best gangster movies and neo noir movies I that agree. I've seen. Like, like I love King of New York. I love Carlito's Way. It's reminded There's me of no Light Sleeper as well. If you've ever seen that one, I haven't seen that, but I've been meaning to for a yeah, while. Yeah, really good. I'm, I'm waiting on. There's an indicator re-release of Light Sleeper coming in like January, at which I'm. Waiting. I just saw that announced. Yeah, that's cool. That's yeah, awesome. That and, funnily enough, soon. that and Devil in a Blue Dress, and I'm oh, nice. gassed about both. That's awesome. Amazing, amazing. So yeah, I I just got to say like, I was absolutely blown away with this on like a stylistic level, on a writing level. I think it's just incredibly well done as well. Oh, we yeah. gotta look up some of these some of the guys who wrote the this. The dialogue and is then, just so quick and witty and and like gross but in the best ways sometimes yeah it's awesome yeah well I, I mean even some of the the tough talking narration it's almost poetic like there's a line in here that oh, Lawrence yeah. Fishburne gets where he says the jungle creed says that the strong must feed on any prey at hand I was branded a beast at every feast before I became a man yeah. <laughs> I think is something that he says yeah and, he's, and it's like all in that that inner monologue and he's got that deep yeah. voice it's oh it's fantastic such a mood yeah. So, so, and, and again, his, his character journey of being just so angry at the idea of drugs and crime as a personal choice. There are moments in here where he just genuinely gets upset at some of the addicts for being addicts. And then he realizes that all of that rage really should have been directed at the system that creates the conditions yep. that results in people like his father existing. He's like, my father didn't exist in a vacuum. He didn't just decide one day I'm going to be a cocaine addict and go shoot up a store. Yep. There is poverty and systemic reasons that that exists. And I think that that's just absolutely insane that this movie gets at that while also being an incredibly like effective stylish crime movie all at the same time. So blown away five. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm almost there. I, I honestly feel like my rewatch will get it. It's in that same kind of vein as like, uh, how, how I v viewed uh, Carlito's way and things like that. I think I just mm -hmm. need that second watch. Cause this thing is, is just airtight. It like it just hurls you through his experience, like through his personal mm -hmm. crisis, like, his identity crisis, uh, j just climbing the ranks and then having that separation between him being on the streets and then Carver just being this you know piece of shit that's just basically telling him to do all these awful things for the quote-unquote greater good. Uh, it's just uh, absolutely tragic. It's uh, two God, absolutely God-tier performances by Goldblum and Fishborn. <laughs> this is like their best, uh, at least top three for me at least. Um, and this, I, I got to watch more Bill Duke because the style on this thing is, is unbelievable. I don't know if he like ventured into this kind of style, 
uh, with his other well. movies, <laughs> but um, but but like it, it, it's a gorgeous, just an absolutely gorgeous film. And I, the last thing I'll say is uh, that d- the deep cover, the theme song, which I don't know if we mentioned yet, uh, is unbelievable. I mean, you have fire, you got fire. Dre, it's so good, <laughs> and you you got Dre, and you have I think it was Snoop Dogg's debut. I believe too. it's Snoop. Yeah, it's Snoop Dogg's debut before he featured on the Chronic with Dr. Dre. Yeah, it's when they called him a Snoop uh, Snoop Doggy Dog. Well, he's Doggy I Dog. Yeah, so it, it's just like that. That was awesome. And uh, for anyone that is interested, I just gotta gotta give a, a recommendation. Uh, Big Pun made a song in '98 called Twins. Oh, I was just about to say yes, that <laughs> using this instrumental, and it is one of the most fire fucking rap songs I've ever heard in my life. So just. Highly recommend that and highly recommend this movie. It's so, so damn good. So yeah, four out of five for now, but I do feel like it's going to get that five. For you, Cam. I'm, yeah, I'm in on that five as well. Um, Definitely for the reasons that you both said in that it's just so stylistically accomplished and just leveraging the, both the cadence and just the visuals of noir in this way that it's just not often done, especially with reference to um, racial politics. Like this very, um, not just in um, the terms of like, it's like who, sorry, I've just really garbled my words there. (laughs) No problem. Um, It's it's a leverage of film noir just in the sense of um, who it's interested in um, and who it is, uh, who is voicing it. Uh, That Mm -hmm. narration, I think really stuck with me for those reasons. Um, mm-hmm. And also just because it feels like a kind of strangely miraculous film, <laughs> just considering its placement. Um, yeah. Not just be- when it came out and also who made it. It's a very eclectic um, group of creators, just like looking at uh, the screenwriters. Um, I think w- one of them was um, Henry Bean, who <laughs> did some- a film called The Believer, like in 2001, which was like... Uh, just very strange. I don't want to call it like, <laughs> I don't want to say it's like a fluke, but it's um, <laughs> just a very, it's like an, it's a real oddity in. Um, wait, the, yeah, I was going to say, wait, the, the, the believer, that's the one where Ryan Gosling plays a Jewish man who's a neo-Nazi, right? Yes. <laughs> I think that's what that one is. And then, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. So it was written by him and then co-written by the guy who, the Oscar nominated writer of Robert Altman's The Player. <laughs> Uh, what it's such a <laughs> yeah it's such a strange wow. like, nexus of creative talent like um it just feels miraculous that it's there and that it's done in the way that it is and that it's so confrontational um yeah like it's so it's so specific in its indictments and uh, very clear <laughs> In, in a way that... Yeah, the, the fact that a movie in 1992 name-dropped George Bush being involved <laughs> in, drug in war, government like, drug dealing... Crazy. It rules. In, in, in the year that the election was up against him, that's fucking crazy. Yeah, that's <laughs> wild. It's it's so good. Um, and Google George Bush Iran-Contra, by the way, if anyone doesn't know any of that <laughs> stuff. You'll have a good read. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, um, I don't know how it compares to the rest of... Um, Bill Duke's filmography because as I mentioned he directed Sister Act 2 back in the habit the very <laughs> right. next year yeah. but um, I, mm. it's just it's just utterly incredible work um, and sort of feels like um, a refute to a lot of the kind of work that Bill Duke was doing as an actor and as a sort of director of television because he was very involved with things like Miami Vice and Hill Street Blues and these kind of 
more righteous depictions of cops. So again, that like the um, just bluntness of its the the sort of bluntness of its indictment against the institution of policing is just crazy good. Like yeah, uh, in the especially in the way that it's executed. Um, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm it, it, it feels it. like just a perfect storm of like uh, of creatives of yeah. so many people at the top of their game. These writers, Bill Duke, the actors, everyone. Um, it, it, it does, it does feel like a bit of like a, like a miracle movie in a way. And I was surprised that I haven't heard more people talk about it in the vein of like crime and gangster stuff like this should or be, real. again, I, I think this should have a, be held in similar esteem. The fact that I was thinking of things like King of New York and Carlito's way yeah. and clockers and some of these just amazing little crime films, um, you know, nuts, nuts that this isn't talked about more. Absolutely. It should be enshrined. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, a, um, a really, really, really great film. Awesome. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for this week. That was went a little long there. Yeah, thanks for that sticking was, with uh, us. <laughs> yeah, City on it's, Fire, nineteen eighty-seven. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, and uh, Deep Cover from nineteen ninety-two. Thanks so much, Cam, for joining us and bringing uh, these with you. Um, if you've got anything to plug, uh, what are you writing? What's up? Yeah. Oh, we um, usually have you do that. Oh man, I, you caught me in the middle of some downtime with writing, but recently I did a video essay for the BBC on Ryan Coogler and his few films. Um, you should be able to catch nice. that on YouTube as of today. Um, cool. It was previously just available on BBC iPlayer, but that's region locked. So I think now you should be able to watch it if you are overseas. Um, so I'd say that's the main thing, yeah. But you can also catch me on Twitter. Um, do you leave handles in? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can do that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I nothing else to plug, really. Awesome. Well, for our listeners, we are going to be back in one week's time. Um, we are going to be doing, i got to get my list out here. <laughs> We're going to be doing uh, continuing Noir-vember. We are going to be pivoting over to uh, 60s Japanese Noir, where we are going to be talking about Seijun Suzuki, and we're going to be talking about his two um, sort of uh, most uh, acclaimed films. We're going to be talking about Tokyo Drifter from 1966 uh. and Branded to Kill from 1967, two um, uh, Japanese noirs that uh, have a very uh, jarring, <laughs> fractured editing style and a bunch of visual idiosyncrasy and craziness. Uh, one, a candy colored, like Yakuza explosion. And the other one, basically a black and white expressionist nightmare version, both directed by Seijun Suzuki and both incredible. So, uh, again, patreon.com slash these always podcast for that episode. That's going to be next week. And then in two weeks time, we are going to be back and we're going to be doing some deep cut noirs, um, oh, yeah. We're going to be doing a, a from what I, I haven't seen either of these yet, but uh, we're having special guest Peter Labuza on, who um, is very, very well versed in classic and Hollywood cinema. So when I asked, I'd, I had to ask him to come and do some noir. He wanted to bring on stuff that people hadn't really heard of. So he's bringing Phantom Lady, which is, I believe, a, a, a feminist noir from the 40s. And then we're going to be talking about one called May God Forgive Me, which, I, from <laughs> what I understand, is a Spanish noir. Oh, interesting. Uh, so <laughs> we're, we're, we're going all out for Peter Labuse's episode, and uh, hopefully we can find those. Phantom Lady, <laughs> I just picked up the Arrow Blu-ray of, so I'm going to be able to watch that. But I think May God Forgive Me is going to be another one of those. We can only find it in 240p on YouTube kind of <laughs> yeah. watches. So... <laughs> 
Love it. Either way, we're going to do some real deep cut noirs that Jamie and I haven't haven't seen, and I'm very curious. Uh, Peter's uh, very, very well-versed in that time period, so I'm sure he knows what he's bringing. But yeah, that being said, that's going to wrap it up for everything this week. Thanks so much, guys, for listening, and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy.